Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Accepting things at face value is not something Derek Woodski has conditioned himself to do. Instead, he's put in the energy and personal responsibility to do just the opposite. Maybe this is why he's been a standout performer in the world of athletics, a reformative coach in strength and conditioning, and one of our biggest man crushes of all time. Derek can be described as a deep thinker, but to us, his insatiable curiosity is what makes him so unique. Fear-mongering, obesity, Charles Polican, and goal-setting are just a few of the topics that we cover with our old friend this week. In a time when most of us are thirsty for honesty and open conversation, let this be the thing that quenches your minds. Here it is, episode 367. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Premier Podcast in Strength and Conditioning. I'm not kidding. The Premier Podcast. Right, but this is the Premier Podcast. I mean, hands down, I don't know if there's a better experience, but we'll leave that for you guys to decide. We have an amazing guest on today, Mr. Derek Woodski. Uh, not only a power athlete alum for presenting at the symposium, but also been on Power Athlete Radio a number of times. And uh, I'll tell you, if I was going to re- pick somebody as my spirit animal, it'd definitely be Derek Witzke or Tate Fletcher. So then, like we always talk, or at least I always joke that hanging with Derek Witzke and getting to talk to him is like chicken soup for my soul. Oh, and he is a very accomplished athlete, NCAA All-American and national champion from Canadian Canada. Canadian champion. He's- Canada. It- from similar region as your uh he's family? from uh yeah western canada my mom is from lethbridge and then lived in vancouver he's from up in the hills i can't remember up in the mountains but he's from a little tiny town and uh yeah just uh, an amazing story if you guys i mean we're not gonna recount Derek's, you know kind of you know progression and for greatness which if, you know we have yeah episodes. podcasts we have uh you know him speaking at the symposium for you to go into that so we just dive right in and I know we have a long discussion on kind of what's going on currently and mm-hmm. I you know he's uh you know since become an American citizen and just yeah, his observation news. on like hey how this looks and how it all goes and his understanding it was cool concepts he brings in so fantasy re- related reaction was one of my notes and how we're creating a lot of that's going on but we need to maintain grounded and we cover training we cover his experience with Charles Poliquin yeah which was always fascinating for me and then big, we come around to goal setting and how to basically pick yourself up by the bootstraps. Don't let the crabs pull you down to the bottom of the bucket yep. and then empower your performance. Derek does an amazing job painting these pictures with different stories and concepts that he applies. So it's not just bu- bullshit. Yeah. And if you're not following Derek Woodski on social media at Derek Woodski, um, check him out man he uh he posts some really amazing stuff and has some really interesting conversations and it's just really one of the most uh influential genuine intelligent articulate uh people that i've come across and uh i remember when we met him it was one of those things where i was like upset that we hadn't been friends before i remember him being like uh, like i've always if you guys have listened to the podcast you've heard me say one of my two regrets uh, coming up to the NFL was one that I didn't know Derek Woodski or uh, Adam uh, were out there. Adam Nelson. Uh, Adam Nelson were Olympic out there. Olympic gold medalist. Uh, were out there training, doing what they did or they, they were doing at the time. Because if I had known those guys existed through social, 
I would have gone, found them, knocked on the door. We would have trained and we would have been some of my, my closest friends. But, you know, people come to your life at the certain points. And uh, I'm just stoked that uh, we get to share another amazing episode with Dirk Winsky. And that is the beauty of Power Athlete Radio. So if you enjoy this episode, what we want you to do, share it. Share it with people. Or go to iTunes. And all the other different platforms and leave us a five-star review. And tell us, tell us how you're feeling. Just let us know what this episode has done for you in terms of your perspective to or fight. how we can improve upon it. Ah, I, uh, I think uh, if you guys have any feedback or any thoughts on how we can improve the podcast, uh, shy of you know John not being on here, Tex not being on here, or you know uh, Luke not being on here, you can leave those to yourself. But uh, how we can improve upon your experience, bring on new guests, or do anything, and at the end of the day, just look to inspire and help people on their journey in these uh, interesting times. Yes, and we are athletes, we are coaches, so we always appreciate the old film room. So if you can help us see what we can't see and the eye in the sky never lies, we'd appreciate that. Yeah. So but, with, uh, without further ado, Mr. Derek Witzke. Well, let's roll right into it. Derek, how you doing, yeah, man? Yeah, sure. Yeah, good. It's been a while. You, usually we would be having this conversation at Summer Strong. That's true. Uh, this is a weird year. Man. No Summer Strong, no Power Athlete Symposium. So these are strange times. Yeah, it's uh, it's a little bit bizarre to say the least. And you know what's really crazy? I think the last time that we jumped on a podcast together was just over a year ago. Um <laughs> maybe a little bit more than a year. It seems like the time's gone really fast. Like the fact that we're rolling into June 1st right now uh, in a week, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. Like uh, the quarantine, I get it. Like, but the groundhog day aspect of quarantine or whatever you want to call it, uh, social distancing, it's almost like it's super accelerated the year. And yeah. it's, uh, I don't think it's a good thing. No, so, well, there's no way to break it up. I mean, every, when every day is the no. same, like, you know, there's no way to really break up time. You have nothing to really kind of mark, um, no events, nothing. So, but I did nothing. hear one positive. Uh, the uh, UT put out like their, pers- like their proposed calendar year for school next year is that they're going to start in the fall, but then after Thanksgiving, they're going to tell the kids to stay at home and to like not come back. Because that would be like maybe when they're potentially looking at like another spike. Oh, right. So they're yeah. thinking that the Texas schools might follow that same thing. So I told the kids, I'm like, if this happens, we are packing up and we're going to go to Mammoth right after Thanksgiving and we're going to stay through the whole new year. Like we're going to go for the whole month. Yeah, I think that'd be the smart way to do it. And the thing that's really strange, Mammoth is kind of... Uh, Mammoth is kind of an island into the state of California with how they're dealing with things here. So initially we thought it was going to be awesome. We're going to be up here in the mountains and, uh, and the the town itself would kind of just deal with it with a very logical mindset. Unfortunately, it hasn't gone that way. Um, So even though we have very little numbers of actually infected here. Uh, I think we're at 34 positive cases since the outbreak started. Part of it is because of geographical distancing. People have the ability here to stay a long ways away, but we only have one grocery store. So everyone in town eventually has to conjugate somewhere. Uh, 
the problem is we've had a very dramatic um, interpretation of the science here. So without like sounding too crazy about it, you know, we had uh, a person in town that is on the town council standing outside the post office, screaming at people in the parking lot three weeks ago, uh, because some people hadn't put their masks on in their car. Uh, so you get some like really radical, uh, over reactions to things in a small town, I think, but on the positive side, we only have 34 cases in all of Mono County that are positive. Now, could we have thousands and get into the debate of asymptomatic people? Yeah, of course. Um, but in terms of actual statistics, not very many. The problem is Mono County is using the same opening uh, phase progression as LA County. So they rolled us back to phase one, uh, kind of phase two last week. The reason being is because we had two positive cases out of 14,000 people. Um, and I guess the standard is, is one case per 10,000. Uh, if you start to exceed that, then you have to put the brakes on your phase two, two B and C openings. Well, our county's mammoth, or <laughs> literally mammoth, our county's huge. Our county goes from Bridgeport almost down to Bishop. And when you look at that geographically, it, it's so vast. So the fact that it's a huge deal. So what has happened here, and this this will make sense to you, John, because you've families lived up here for so long, is some of the like pillars of small town business here have all closed, and they're they're not coming back. So we're at about a fifty percent pushing towards seventy percent projected closure of small businesses here uh, forever not unfortunately for the duration but forever like Nick and Willie's which is like a 30 year old sandwich shop they're done and they're not coming back so when I look at it that way it's I try not to be um, too critical because I, I I'm not in a position to fully understand what's happening, but at the same time, I'm like, there had to have been a little bit better of a progression progression into dealing with this situation in some regards, because I mean, it's just, it's, it's catastrophic. We've lost it. We've lost the culture of a town. Now, with that being said, university or if uh, Texas closes their schools, and the ski hills open. Come to Mammoth. Oh, well, we we yeah we already discussed it. We we went last yeah. night to. Uh, so I like. Um, I think yesterday was my fucking boil boiling over point, and poor Tex actually had to show up and talk to me for about an hour. And I know he was fucking cringing to get out of there as I was ready to fucking axe murder. You, people. you were hugging me pretty tight there. Well, the problem that I've run into is that um, you hear people that are like, oh, you know, like uh, uh, like I listened to some lady and uh, by no means am I a Donald Trump fan, but like second guessing him and like this fucking idiot and was raging. And I was like, well, OK, so what's the Monday morning quarterback? How would you have handled this differently? Who right. Obama? How would anybody have handled this differently? People make decisions based off the information. Should we have shut down sooner? Do we not? Because right. if, if we're looking at just the pure numbers and I watched a podcast with uh, um, uh, Levitt, who's, uh, who, who won the Nobel Prize, or sorry, won the Nobel Prize in like mathematics three years ago. He's a Stanford professor. He went and crunched all the numbers, like all over the world. Nice, you know, everything broke it all down. 
And he's like, the numbers, if you look at the numbers, they don't justify a quarantine. They don't justify a shutdown. He goes, we had a very mild flu season. And he goes, if you look at like the COVID deaths, they are in line with what like a double accelerated flu season. So we are actually on pace to have what we, the amount of people we lose in every other flu season. And he's like, uh, the reaction that we're having, and if you want to say it's mass social distancing, these are all good things for reducing the flu. But he goes, like, to shut down and destroy an economy and lose, you know, the culture and this and like, you know, put people in homes and quarantine. And his comment was the same one I made. We've never quarantined healthy people. Quarantine, no. by definition, is quarantining people that are sick. And then he got into this whole thing where people are like, well, what about asymptomatic? Asymptomatic just means that you've been infected and your immune system doesn't respond because you have a strong immune system. So, like, Correct. it's it, it, and the problem is the way they spin it, it's like some other version. And it just, like, it was really interesting. I posted on Facebook and only actually three people watched it, which is hilarious because I realized um, people don't want to look at it rationally. Everything is this fear, emotion driven. And it's like, dude, um, and you know this, Derek, dude, we lose 300,000 people a year just to obesity related deaths. And that's 100% preventable. And we're not talking about that one. What about smoking? Mm. What about this? I could go through all these and it's like, all of a sudden we have, you know, 20, 30,000 deaths that pace exactly what's happening with the flu season. And like, uh, you know, and, and whether or not you buy into all this or everything, I'm just looking at the at the numbers the guy crunched and then people were bringing this up and my comment to them was okay if these are the numbers and you guys want to go off of the empirical data and the numbers this is what the numbers are telling us that we should have never have shut down right and then people lose their fucking minds they lose their minds and i have been very i've talked to a handful of people about this but i've been very cautious because everyone wants to politicize the actual virus itself in terms of the handling. And you can look at all the stats and you can look at person-to-person contact, all that stuff, it's not made up. We know that the virus was contagious pretty much at a certain date now. We can go back and look and be like, okay, this country was hiding this information, this country discovered it, Uh, Vietnam had Uh, person-to-person contact reported on the 15th of January. All that stuff has kind of been backtracked and and documented. So we know that all of these things occurred, which created a bit of a hysteria. Now, I think it, it, I think for all that we have lost so far, and I've, I, I hate to be a doomsdayer, but I do feel like we've lost a lot more culturally as a people in this country than, than we realize. I, I think the, the pandemic and the way that we've dealt with it has has been catastrophic to the fabric of how people interact. And when a lot of people think that it, it's just going to go back to normal, but, but it's not. I'm looking at people in the middle of nowhere. Let's call it Death Valley, real story. I pass a guy on a, in a car, in my car, going opposite directions. We are the only two cars I saw in a 10-hour period. And, and that fucking guy was rocking a mask inside his car. Right. And we know it's become a joke and it's become this thing. I I, I see it all the time. Yeah. So I live, you know, 60 miles from Death Valley, roughly. I live in the middle of nowhere if I choose to. And in the middle of nowhere, I see people like just in complete panic to what is around them. And to me, when I see that, uh, Brendan Schaub had a really funny quote on a podcast. He said, when he's out riding his bike and he passes a guy in the middle of nowhere wearing a mask by himself, he yells, we can't be friends, right? As like, uh, and, 
and I get what he's saying and, and, and I understand it because when I see that, what I see is somebody that is having an illogical reaction to a very methodically at this point and logically understood statistic. And so when I see that, I have a tendency to look at that person and be like, okay, if this is the reaction that they're having, they're either A, getting all of their information from a source that is perpetuating a fear that is not balanced to the reality of the situation, which is a problem. Okay. So fear mongering, probably the media, or I'm seeing somebody that is having a fantasy related reaction to something where they feel like they're becoming the hero of a situation by perpetuating this image of I'm doing this because I'm strong and I'm standing up and, and doing my part. Okay. Either way, your reaction is so much worse than the situation that if the shit really hits the fan, I don't fucking want that person on my team because I don't know if I will be able to depend on them in a real situation. So for example, people will be like, ah, it's kind of harsh. Well, it's not that fucking harsh. I remember me and, and my partner, Megan, we were, we have friends in this community that are extremely healthy or so I thought, extremely put together, extremely logical people. They work in an industry where they are putting in huge amounts of, of exercise volume every day. So on the front side of this pandemic, and <clears throat> not getting into the conspiracy theory side, we're pretty sure it hit mammoth in like December, not February, because of the amount of international travel we had through December from other parts of the world. And we got hammered in this town, hammered in this town by a flu. Megan got it so bad, we had to go to the emergency room in December. She tests negative for every form of influenza that they could test for at that time. The symptoms were identical to what came out in February. It went through our town in December. We were devastated. And now, you know, here we are in May and we've only had 34 positives. Hmm, that's an interesting coincidence. So when I go back and look at these people on the front side of the pandemic, we had people that were like, this was their mindset and this is how it should have stayed. I'm young, I'm healthy, I'm active, no problem. Based on the information that's coming out, I'm going to rock this and keep my life pretty normal. Okay. These same people disappeared from our world after the the media started to ramp up the the severity of what could come down the pipe and we're like man where did these people go we don't hear from them we don't see them uh you know i haven't seen them in the grocery store like it, it was really strange and they were all gone then randomly five weeks into this nightmare we run into two of them in the grocery store they had double masks on ski goggles hoods gloves and uh, they were grocery shopping. These are logical, educated people, I'm or telling so you. so you thought logical, educated people. Okay, and so it gets worse. So I'm looking at them, and Megan, she's blown away, right? Like, lay, uh, Megan just can't wrap her head around what she's looking at. And we're having a conversation, and they wouldn't get any closer than about, you know, 12 feet from us. And I'm looking at them, and then I kind of realized, and, and this is just, this is what happened. They had two gallons of whiskey and seven bottles of wine in their cart. So what we realized at that point is that they've been self-medicating with a huge amount of alcohol for five weeks. And that is where they've been since this started. And so when we kind of looked at each other and looked at the situation, we were like, oh, this is a problem. 
this, if this is a small micro demographic of the country right now, when the, when the doors open up and the people that have been under heavy quarantines, like the state of California and Michigan, et cetera, when things start to come back and things start to light up, people aren't going to be able to adjust back to a regular life because they've fallen into a routine, which has been so self-medicating on so many say toxic, to- like toxic it's would be the toxic. Dude. Yeah. And and we that's saw, troublesome to me. We saw something crazy yesterday. I told Kate, I'm like, hey, we got to let, like, let's go out to dinner. Like, let's find yeah. some place that we can actually go and sit down and go eat. Uh, we, we hit like 10 different places only doing takeout. We found one really awful sushi restaurant, which I swore to myself I would never go to, uh, Tadashi. Um, <laughs> it's, it's fucking awful sushi. Uh, but they were seating people outside. So we... Walked up and I was like, hey, can we sit out here? No problem. So there was a table, you know, obviously the tables are all split up and they're only a limited seating. And there's a couple at this table and uh, we all like sit down, three kids, me and Kate, like, you know, they're wearing masks, which was funny because they're like lifting up the mask, eating and then pulling the mask down, which I thought was fucking crazy. I'll be um, coming back to that point in a moment. Uh, so we're like, the kids are like running around, like, like my son's jumping around, he's playing on like the railing and this, and these people are watching us with like disdain and this like, like the lady's look on her face was like, uh, I like, I could see, like, she's wearing sunglasses and a mask and I can see the fucking look on her face just, and they're both yep. just staring, sitting next, like on the corner tables like this, just staring at us, not looking at even talking to each other. And, um, the kids get up, they're like running around playing, whatever. It's like, nobody's talking. There's no music. It's like a fucking morgue. And, uh, the kids, uh, got too close and like the lady flinched. They fucking got up and left. They oh, just literally dude. just got up and left. Like, like we want to go out to appear to be normal, but these kids got too close to us. So now the lady had a panic attack and they just fucking just literally just like didn't pay, didn't do Tiny anything, dash. just fucking got up and walked away. And the lady just yep. stormed out. Like how like and uh, we're sitting there and Kate and my wife like looks at me and I was kind of just was like, I think they fucking just left. Like, yep. and there was maybe only like five tables in this, like everybody was probably 10, 20 feet away, one server. And the guy like comes back and looks around and he's like, Hey, you see where those people went? I'm like, uh, dude, I don't even know what happened. Like, and, um, I came to the conclusion that, well, I'm not, I've come to this conclusion in a while that we've effectively created this distrust of our, of, of healthy people and normal people that somehow mm-hmm. there's this invisible, like invisible evil that's hiding in each person that's going to fucking attack me and jump on me. And I had the only way I can do is by keeping away and this. And I'm, and I like realized I was like, man, like this is, uh, this has caused a huge problem that I don't know if people are going to come back from because the fact that like, like you can't go sit in a public place and like see some kids running around. Like if anything, I was just stoked that my kids got to run around and play and screw around and like see people. And I remember telling them, I'm like, Hey, like, uh, you know, like, uh, it just, man, I, at that point I was like, huh, this is so creepy. Like there was no music and normally like outdoor at that place, like there's some music playing, you see people walking around this and that. And then like, of course you see like the weird people walking by with their dogs with the face masks on and in the gloves. And I'm like, all you're doing is constantly reminding us how creepy this is. And, um, yep. it's, uh, it like at that point I was like, everybody, you know, we ate and got back in the car, ate the worst sushi I've ever had, got back in the <laughs> yeah. car. Uh, and then the hilarious part is last night I'm laying there, I'm like, God, and I had like terrible leg cramps. Like I was like cramping in my yeah. legs and I'm like, God damn it. That's sushi. That place is the worst. And it's the only yeah, place yeah, we could find open. Botulism. Yeah. Uh, dude, well, yeah I totally fought something. 
yeah, you, yeah, yeah. Your your COVID killed the botulism. That's what happened. So. Uh, <laughs> do, you know, uh, um, it, like it's uh, it's pretty interesting, man. We uh, I, I went in and uh, I got antibody tested. I mean, I don't have any symptoms or yep. anything, so I've been waiting on that to come back. But like, it's it's. Um, it, if you look at like a healthy and, and there was a, a couple of really interesting articles recently about this for a healthy individual, this is like a headache and maybe like two or three days at home, just kind of hanging out, maybe a sore yep. throat, maybe a little something else. It's, it's no different. But the problem is if you're an unhealthy individual, uh, you know, which is like obesity, preexisting conditionals, other stuff, it becomes, you know, deadly. And when I talked to Tom Inkledon about it, Tom's like, here's the crazy part for healthy people. This isn't even a blip. But what we're seeing right now is it's the first time in our recent history where we've seen a snapshot into exactly how unhealthy the American population is. Very good point. And it's funny that you put it that way because I've I got two kind of back-to-back stories. One is more technical, one is more social, to your point with the masks. The technical one, before I forget it, in about week three of this whole ordeal, a friend of mine who is an administrator or was a former administrator at the University of South Carolina hospital system. Now she's in another state. And I hadn't spoke to her for a little bit. She's been in the industry for a long time. And about week three to five-ish, somewhere in there, I, I reached out to her just to see how she was doing. And I just asked her matter of factly, because she's very in the middle. She doesn't really get swayed too much. She's a numbers girl. And and I asked her, you know, how do you feel the situation is? And, and she came back with something rather interesting. She said, well, initially, when we first got word that it could be a pretty big deal, my job was to gather data in relationship to how our hospital is to deal with the outbreak, big hospital, and, uh, and just kind of get everything sorted to be like, how bad is this going to be? And I'm like, well, all right, give me your interpretation of it. And she goes, well, the situation is, in her opinion, the hospital did not see it as a significant threat to them in terms of a virus. They said that it was a very treatable virus and that they didn't feel that it was going to be of significant concern. However, she had one caveat that I thought was really interesting, and it goes back to your point. She said, in a very small percentage of people, the difference between this and the flu is that they will require medical equipment. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And she goes, yeah. She goes, so it's not that the flu itself is all that dangerous. She goes, but in those with a high morbidity or issues related to intubation, they will require equipment. And she said, a matter of factly, we didn't have it in the beginning. She, get, she said that they didn't have the equipment for the estimation of how many people would require it. So they had to put into place all these rules with hospitals, uh, you know, no voluntary surgeries, et cetera, et cetera, until they felt that they had got the equipment sorted. And that happened very quickly. People think we're still dealing with that. She said they had the equipment at her hospital system sorted in about 20 to 30 days. At that point, though, she said something very strange started to happen. She goes, for one, one of the biggest university hospital systems in the state furloughed 1,000 nurses and doctors. All right, because they no longer had work to do. She goes, so that was unexpected. She goes, and the second thing that they saw a massive spike in sepsis related to uh, things like appendicitis that people were no longer going to the hospital to have checked. So appendix and appendix ruptures and sepsis in this state are through the roof. 
people are dying left and right from appendicitis. She goes, we cured that a hundred years ago in a, in a sense. And then other things that they've been dealing with that. Dude, uh, heart people, attacks, uh, people that heart normally attacks. would, would uh, they were saying people that were having heart attacks that would normally go, they weren't admitting them. They were yep. sending them home and people were dying. And then the other one was uh, five times less cancer diagnosis because the way they diagnose cancer is through elective surgeries. Like, Hey, they're going and doing something. Yep. And then they, oh, by uh, the way, by the way, so there's five times less cancer and like the heart attacks shot through the roof because they were sending people, oh, it's just some chest pains, go home, you'll be fine, they go home and die. How about this one? Gangrene. Because people get cut doing what they normally do and they just don't go. They'll deal with it at home. So she said they're dealing with 1840s style medical problems. And she goes, meanwhile, the hospital's empty. Um, so that was like the technical side where I'm like, oh, that's kind of an eye opener. People should be, you know, paying attention to the other side, going back to the social distancing that you experienced in that restaurant as a guy who lived and worked in a country that practices sexual segregation and social distancing and the covering. And I had this conversation with Tate Fletcher just recently. I go, because he asked me kind of what I thought was going on. And I said, well, here's the thing. You're creating social distancing. You're creating segregation of people in, in our world right now. It's healthy, unhealthy, this imaginary healthy, unhealthy. It's kind of like, and I said, it's kind of akin to sexual segregation in a Muslim country where there's this imaginary thing where if they don't cover the face of a female and, and, and cover her in garments that take away her female form, that it could elicit uh, a potential problem or response from the males around them. I go, the problem with that is, and the thing that's kind of unspoken is when you cover yourself so thoroughly all the time, there's a dehumanizing aspect to that. You start to lose, especially as a person from our culture that goes over there, you start to not notice them literally. And that's, that's the point of why they do it. Now, the problem with that is, is when you start to get a lot of people that are all masked, all covered, not just one uh, gender, people start to dehumanize each other very quickly. You start to be, you know, it's, it's no big deal to walk past somebody that all you can see is the eyes. You, you, you start to like acknowledge that existence as kind of like, wallpaper. So if you get into a psychological state over time where, and it's hard to explain to people that haven't spent a lot of time in these countries where it's like this. So if I'm saying the Middle East, 40, when I the plane, and I used to joke about it, when I would land in the United States or land in the UK, and all of a sudden all the females were dressed as we think with, you know, sounds normal clothes, whatever the hell that means, but they're not fully covered in a, in a baya and they're not facially covered. And, and all of a sudden you realize that they're everywhere. Well, the thing is, is the female form in the Middle East is everywhere all around you all the time. And you literally stop noticing it. Now you can jump that ahead to the situation we're having now. If things started to get to a place where there was a heavy divide or some sort of need to bring us back together after all this, especially if it goes for a lot further, 
uh, or a lot more time, if there's a need to bring us back together, it's going to get harder and harder and harder to do because there's this dehumanizing aspect of these entities walking around, the face mask people, the glove people, or, you know, I should stop and help that guy. Oh, it's totally covered up. Nah, my brain doesn't recognize it the same way. It's just, it's just wallpaper and you just kind of go about your day and it, and it, there's a dehumanizing aspect to that, that people are failing to, to realize. And, and people think, yeah, but it's going to be, you know, this side against that side, the face mask people against the non-face mask people. And, and I say, it's going to be worse than that. It's the people that have taken the time to, to stay relatively interacted with the human form as is facial expression, eyes, body, hands. And I'm not talking about physical contact. There could be 15 feet of social distancing and they're, they're just not always covered. Those people will have an easier time readjusting back to dealing with people than those that lock themselves into their house, cover themselves with goggles and masks and gloves. Doesn't matter where they go, wearing a mask out in Death Valley. Those people are going to have a very difficult time rehumanizing themselves to society. And as much as they'll be like, oh, no, I'll, I'll bounce back. No, you won't bounce back. No, the, it's a uh, psychological break. Well, and the other one, too, is if, if you want to do like really break down a society and start creating like, you know, and I, I'll just use like a little Nazi Germany where, hey, you know what? These are the people to blame. You know, this is why your lot in life is happening. The easiest way to do is dehumanize the people, which is what they did with the Jews. Right. Uh, in a sense, it's the same thing where like, hey, now you're dehumanizing people where you can't see their faces. You can't see this. Like the most interesting one, and I heard um, somebody say this the other day. Uh, I went to the chiropractor and this lady made an interesting point. She's like, yeah, like there's always uh, people panhandling. Like right mm -hmm. off of the, um, like right when you get off the on ramp, there's always a dude there. And uh, the lady was like, Yeah, I just put my face mask on the car when he walks up so I can kind of like shield myself from him and he can't see me because I don't want to give him money. And I was like, Wow, so wow. You, don't even, you don't even have the balls to wear the mask and tell the dude, like, just wave him on. You want to wear, just wear the mask and fucking just. Like, and I, and I realized I was like, dude, that's indicative. Like, I think maybe yep. people have fucking secretly always wanted this so that they don't, uh, have to, you know, they can subscribe to ideology and not humanity. And it, um, it, it, dude, it's, uh, it's really, really interesting just seeing like, um, like, so when this thing originally started, the whole idea of quarantine and this whole deal was about flattening the curve, right? We don't want to right. overload the hospitals because, you know, we're going to get too many people in and they're not going to be able to handle it and it's flattening the curve. And then after about two weeks of that, it changed to this, like, uh, you have to stay inside to avoid it. And my comment to people is, did you think that you are going to go through life and never get this thing? Because I remember them right. saying pretty early on, um, the way it transmitted, everybody's going to get it. We just got to flatten the curve and slow the, uh, the exposure. And then it switched to this idea of like, I'm going to hide at home, drink nothing but alcohol and hide under, you know, like you said, face masks and this right. whole deal is some way to avoid it. And like, like my whole thing was like, man, I, I, I wish we just had chicken pot parties. Like I remember when right. we were kids, shit, like some kid got chicken pox and we all had to go over and play with him. We all got chicken pox and it was like, uh, like my mom's like, yeah, that's how we did it. I'm like, can we just find out who has it and go lick him in the face a few times and we'll see what happens. Yep. So at least exactly then I can wear a shirt that says, hey, I got antibodies, leave me the fuck alone. Well, that, that's my big concern. So in, within week two, I was starting to ask some weird questions in the <laughs> safety of my own house, right? Like by week two, I was like, okay, so when do I get my vaccination green card? When do I have my passport? Show me your papers. 
You're right. Like I started to wonder and, and you know, obviously since the last time I spoke to you guys, I became an American citizen. So there's been like a a lot of things. Oh, thank you. Congratulations. Um, Yeah. So that was, and that was a big deal for me. My brother's going through the process now. So it's, uh, well, that's all put on hold, but it makes sense as to why. Uh, So with all that happening, what was really strange to me, um, even though I'm a dual citizen, was when they closed the Canadian border, like unprecedented, right? So I was like, okay, hold on a second. My parents live in Canada. I live in the U.S. And I and unless I have a, like a real reason, and it has to be like real, from what I understand, uh, emergency status, I can't pop across the country to see my, my folks. And for people that don't think about that, it's like, y- you have to understand the, the cascade of things that are actually happening for us to get to a point where the Canadian and American border is closed to weekend travel. Like, the the cascade of that down the road, international flights, domestic flights, will people even get on an airplane? Uh, a friend of mine who works with one of the large airlines, they're because of how the age of pilots is kind of lining up with all the financial hardships they're dealing with. You know, it's going to be in the neighborhood of 5,000 veteran airplane pilots are actually all taking early retirement right now while this is happening. And this isn't stuff that's making the news. This is just stuff that's happening. You know, so you're taking American Airlines, you know, uh, having 5,000 veteran pilots be like, well, I don't know when this is kicking back around. Oh, you're going to give me early retirement because it's going to save you money down the road. All right, we're out. So, you know, when we come out of this, uh, American Airlines is going to be in jeopardy of having to restart with 5,000 less pilots. Uh, Delta Airlines announced that they're going through a $50 million a day cash burn right now. 50 million. Um, They retired their 777 fleet completely. So Delta Airlines no longer will be using 777s uh, as of July, uh, which means its large international routes will all be changing. Um, you know, they, they, their domestic airline, the I think it's the MD-90, is retired in June all of a sudden. So now we're looking at, okay, they're projecting, and these are people that are, they're looking at the social psychological dynamics of business at this point because they're looking at it going, okay, when we kick out of this, how are people going to be reacting? And they're getting people much smarter than I am to come in and break down the psychological fallout of this for the average consumer. And they're anticipating that nobody's going to be traveling, not three months from now. They're anticipating nobody's going to be traveling 18 to 20 months from now. Um, And if that's the case, economics, business, trade, how we do things in this country is going to change dramatically. Like, I, I always say I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but fuck, if there was ever something. Uh, dude, to- uh, <laughs> normally when you say I'm not like, cause I, I do yeah. too, I, I'm, I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I'm also not a fucking idiot. I'm and, not an idiot. Right? So, and, and so like, that's what you run into. Cause all of a sudden you're like, I'm not a fucking idiot, but like, let me just lay this out and see if other logical people think that this doesn't make fucking sense. So is, go is that on. the new, okay. so don't take this the wrong way. Don't take this the wrong way, right? Hey, it's like, offended, uh, but you're a fucking douchebag. You're like, yeah, but it's equivalent. It's equivalent to the old, uh, like dudes in a parking lot being like, all right, no bullshit, but this happened yesterday. Right. So, 
it's uh, the two things that like caught me really off guard was a on like March 16th or whatever it was when the shit hit the fan in Mammoth. It was kind of like the same time it hit the fan everywhere. So when they closed the ski hill here is when things really were escalating nationally. And it was a sign to us that this is really serious when Altera closed all of its res resorts and furloughed up to 17,000 people. So when you look at it that way, it was just very weird to me that on that day, there's an announcement on Bloomberg that, you know, uh, Bill Gates leaves Microsoft and steps off the board of Berkshire Hathaway, like on the same day, just boop, I'm out. After all these years, he just randomly just steps off both of his companies. Well, at the same time, it's that night I get a commercial on whatever channel for the Microsoft meeting software. Right. Where all of a sudden Microsoft is bringing the world together with their like Zoom like interview platforms. And I'm just like, all right, fuck. OK, I, I try not to look too deep into this, but how is this all a coincidence? Like, how is this all happening so perfectly? Like either they're so much better at business and projections, which I'm sure they are, and anticipating market need than anybody else on the planet, or they're just like, oh yeah, we had a fucking heads up. Yeah, we rolled this shit out a little earlier than we wanted to, but we kind of knew it was coming. And if that's the case, then I step back and I'm like, okay, so now if I take away all of the, the right and left political arguments and, and the Bill Gates vaccine shit, like you take all that out of it and you just get back to business. Wouldn't it make sense that you would use an opportunity like this to massively integrate your new economic platforms so that the most people possible become either addicted to or used to using new technology in a very confined, funneled way so that as we click out of this next year or things start to move back to normal, it has now become normal for people to do the equivalent of a Zoom on a Microsoft, right? So all of a sudden, this type of teleconferencing becomes the new standard. And would it be too crazy to think that maybe they push the narrative that we need to self-isolate a touch longer just to make sure that the integration of how fast we get used to new technology really takes, right? So it's, it's not that we're being manipulated by the gloves of the Illuminati, but it's just really smart fucking people going, yeah, we need about another 15 to 30 days for full integration of new technology so that people start to look at this as the new normal, the way that we go everywhere with that cell phone in our hand is the way that we will be when we need to communicate in business. So it's like, yeah, so here's the deal. We do business internationally. Shit, how do we do it? No one wants to get on an airplane. Don't worry about it. Zoom, which we're using right now, which is a Chinese-owned company, if I'm not mistaken, or Microsoft, which is the American equivalent, are like, hey, we sorted it for you. You don't have to get on that airplane anymore because now I'm watching a commercial on you know, NBC where doctors are actually integrating and talking via Microsoft, whatever it is, and they're going over analysis of disease and they're going over templates with people of, of x-rays and they're doing it from the comfort of your home. doesn't mean as a patient, I probably still didn't get hit with that insurance bill because that doctor still got paid. The difference is, is that doctor is now sitting in the comfort of his office or that CEO in New York is now having a meeting with 17 people worldwide. And it just seems really coincidental 
to me as a consumer and as someone sitting on my couch, that it all just kind of happened perfectly in line. And those are the weird questions that I can't figure out, right? It just seems too obvious no, to those or, that are paying or attention. Or it, uh, it just feels, like you said, way too smooth in the transition. I'll, I'll so tell you, smooth. man, um, I was kind of thinking, I'm like, uh, like at what point do, and, and you, you brought up actually the one statement, which I was going to, like, so I, I always get worried whenever I hear repetitive statements. I mean, we've, yes. we've done it with Power Athlete, you know, uh, Premier Podcast and Strength Conditioning. Yeah, that's yeah. So I mean, like, I don't know if you know this, Derek, but Power Athlete Radio is the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. So we used some of uh, like the, uh, I, I guess you could say, like rhetorical ideas of like, hey, if you constantly kind of put something out there, it ends up just kind of working its way into the fabric. And now that I'll say this, you'll because you said it, this has become the new normal. This whole right. new normal thing, you hear it, uh, that exact tagline, and what it reminds me of is uh, the movie They Live with Rowdy Roddy Piper, you remember? Where Absolutely. he, like, sees the glasses, and it's like, this is your God, and he went through the whole thing. Like, I posted I, that meme week one, and people burnt me alive. Dude, uh, well, you're, I see you're wearing the chair is against the wall. John has a large mustache uh, shirt. Uh, but, uh, you know, and only those that have seen... Um, uh, Red Dawn would know the analogy, but it was also those the were original. also statements to uh, that they would use in the like what was it like the the, the radio for Vietnam yeah. I think is where it came from. But um, as I'm listening to these statements, and I kind of like constantly like am like kind of just like perfectly like sifting through statements that I hear repeated over and over and over. And this whole thing, every time they're like, "This is our new normal," because what they're doing is they're trying to sell that this is our new normal when this isn't the fucking new normal, right? The no. new normal is a facade. This is bullshit. Um, yes. And like, you know, like, uh, but they attach it to everything. And I think you have, I, I think statistically for like, for uh, a message to think in, you have to see it like 17 different times in three different mediums for it all of a sudden to like enter into the vernacular and become something that you're comfortable with. And like, right. I see it on different news stations you see it here you see different people like you see it from all these different places and it's like this is the new normal like i was like dude uh, this isn't the fucking memo i didn't get like no. one i don't want this memo and two i'm not buying who's sending out this memo i agree 100 percent. and and megan's funny like megan is really not adjusted well to the bullshit for lack of a better word and thankfully that that's the type of partner i have in this situation because for example we have a grocery store in town. We only have one grocery store in town. It's Safeway, and, and right? This is, is, is it Safeway? Uh, probably connected to them. I th ours is called Vons. Yeah, okay. It's Vons. That's right. right. Yeah. yeah, so, so, so in, there's California, a huge in, in California, it was Vons and Safeway. And they yep. had like, I think they merged and they all became Vons. But they originally, it was a Safeway. Safeway. And so what was really interesting is, you know, and, and, and people will peg you over making comments like this, but the reality of the situation is we're an isolated little town. So things that were happening at the big centers were going to happen here in terms of new ways of doing business, in terms of plexiglass on the cashier's register and, and the social distancing stuff. But what people never stop to think about is that we're not going to get the new supplies in week one at our little store, LA County, all those Vons, they're going to get all the new signage and the plexiglass and all that stuff. They're going to get it first because they're dealing with huge volumes of people. So you'll see where I'm going with this. 
we are like way into this bullshit, right? We're like uh, late April, all of a sudden at our Vons and Mammoth Lakes, things have been good, right? Like it's been quiet up here, not a lot of tourism, <laughs> no, no one's sick. I haven't heard someone sneeze in public in fucking weeks. And uh, which isn't, by the way, a symptom of COVID, just so people know it's <laughs> unrelated. I hear you cough. I'm going to throw a punch you. Just kidding. Not really. So anyway, <laughs> when we were in the uh, the Vons, uh, all of a sudden they put down the stickers on the floor like seven weeks into this of which direction to walk <laughs> in the grocery store. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so they put down these giant red stickers and they start playing this uh, recorded message about how to walk in the grocery store. So a logical person would go, Oh, we just finally got our stickers in our recording. That's neat, right? That's a neat thing. You fucking psychos, but that's not what happened here. What it did was reinstill a fear. So people that had finally started to kind of unwind the tension a little bit, all of a sudden go into the one grocery store in town and there's all these directional segregation rules and people are like, holy shit, it's getting worse. There's giant red stickers on the floor. There's this audio playing above us and we reset. People reset immediately, and all of a sudden, people stop going to the grocery store. What, what's the name of like the the hippie natural place? There's like that hippie super like market um, up here. Yeah, uh, it's, yeah. It's actually it's it's actually called Whole Foods. Is it called Whole Foods? But it's not a Whole yeah. Foods. No, it's it, like it's been Whole Foods since like '74. Yeah. So so we so <laughs> we used to go to that place. So there was like um, uh, Safeways on the other side, or sorry, Fonz is on like the other side of town. Right mm -hmm. in like the the downtown, it's like like uh, right across from like that coffee place on the other side of the road, and it's like kind of like on yeah. that like uh, deal. And we used to Little go old to, strip mall. Yeah, yeah, in that strip mall. Uh, we used to go to that place because, um, you know, like uh, they had like puffed rice cereal and you get it by the pound yeah. and like, you know, like the uh, peanut butter that you actually like, you know, hear the peanuts and they grind them down. So we used to go to that hippie place like yep. for years. That was our spot. And uh, and then when they built that big uh, Vons, like on the other side, like down past yep. um God, what's it down? Like like where the circle on the other side of town. Yeah, it's by the church yeah. and like. Yeah, yeah, the high school and all, yeah. yeah uh, so exactly. so they, they built that and like it was pretty amazing. Like uh, I remember when that came in and we still like my dad would be like, oh, you guys want to no, we got to go to the, the hippie place. And so it, I was wondering, right. like, did they shut that place down or is that place still oh, yeah. rocking? Wow. Closed, dude. It's a small business. Wow. Yeah. That's the other problem, right? Um, so Mammoth, his, the only businesses now, now I say this with and I try not to be too harsh. Some, I think technically could be open, but chose not to be for a lot of reasons. I don't know them. So I, I think there could be financial reasons. There could, okay, fuck. Let's just get to the like nuts of the problem up in this town. People are making more money on unemployment than they were making working at these businesses. It is a known fact in our town that people made the decision not to go back to work. That That's what we're dealing with here. It's, it's, it's a fact of the matter. I don't give a fuck what anyone says. That's what we're dealing with. The problem with that is, and I, and I, and I can't judge everybody with the same brush, but because these, some of these small businesses can't afford to pay based on the volume of customers they get the same wages and promise the same hours that these individuals are making from unemployment, 
they made the choice not to go back to work. Okay, I understand that. The problem is, is it causes a small business to fucking go broke because not every small business is getting a financial kickback from the government. It just doesn't work that way. So out of the 50 or 60% of businesses here in town that have already closed, that's been a part of the problem. Another part of the problem, one of our largest employers in the community is a multi hundred billion dollar company. They didn't give the restaurants any breaks on rent. So you got a restaurant that requires 40,000 visitors a weekend to stay open in the village is now closed because they were forced to shut down because they're a restaurant and the owner of the lean or the least of these buildings didn't give them any breaks. So that's the other problem that we're having. So the, we have a massive corporation that for sure is getting some sort of kickback because that's how it works. Not passing down the savings to the businesses that keep them going because their mentality is, oh, we're so big and powerful. This guy wants to jump out of his lease for 30K a month because he can't stay open. That's all right. We'll fill it again once we get rolling. My question is, will you? Will you fill it again if they push the uh, opening of the season? Because the last time I checked, the big fear mongering that the media is promoting is that this is a cold weather virus, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I'm pretty sure the ski industry is Foxville well, come November. Well, it's crazy because if you look at SARS and MERS, it fucking happened in the desert. Like, uh, like, Dude. like I listened to a whole thing where it's like this idea that like the, uh, the virus will go away when it gets hot is total nonsense. And they pointed nonsense. to other COVID viruses that are like, these ones happen in hot climates all the time. Look at SARS, look at MERS. Like these, I was uh, a part of the MERS epidemic. I was there when it broke and they moved all the fucking camels out of Riyadh. I was there during that time. I'm actually pretty sure I got MERS if I'm like a hundred percent honest, but with MERS in particular, um, or they just called it Corona over there. Uh, the people that got it, got it predominantly from drinking camel's milk, right? And so they moved all the camels out of Riyadh, where is the cam camel trading center of the world. And they moved them all out into the desert. MERS just vanished, man. Like, and it wasn't because people weren't sick. They just didn't treat it like a, any big deal. They didn't close airports. They didn't do any of that shit. And MERS was a horrific Middle Eastern, you know, uh, respiratory syndrome. It, it is a horrific virus to get. Horrific. If I did get it, one of the sickest four-day periods of my life in the Middle East. Yeah, know? it's, uh, so, yeah, that, that whole thing with this, I mean, like the, uh, so like when, yeah, I mean, they're, they're probably going to push, but I'll tell you, like my brother, pretty interesting, who's in California, um, like right. as we were talking, he's like, I'm just telling you, like, if you turn on the news and you listen to the reports here in California, it's almost like if you get, stay inside, if you get this, you'll die. He's like, that's yes. basically what they're saying. Whereas, yeah. um, you know, and, and the problem, and he's like, well, we don't know anybody that's had it. So like, he's like, I, yeah. uh, you know, where I was like, we do. And they were fine. They had a headache for three days and then that was it. And my brother was like, what? He's like, dude, he goes, if you listen to the news, man, like, uh, you're going to die if you get it. But he's like, we don't know anybody that's had it. Well, and, and that's the other thing. So it kind of brings us full circle. Since we are human performance people, it kind of pushes us back against the wall in the fact that the, in, 
the increased numbers of, of illness and morbidity, okay, if you take away the conspiracy side, side of the 39,000 for every innovated patient and the 14,000 for every COVID that's written on a report. So you take away the subsidies that are given to hospitals, which uh, I'm no fucking economics expert, but if somebody was going to give me 14 grand to write COVID on a piece of paper, you, yeah, your broken arm is COVID. So I totally understand where that's coming from. But on the other side of it, the, uh, the issue that we're having here in the United States, especially with the increased number of people that are just not particularly healthy, they're, they're obese, they, they live a rather luxurious lifestyle nutritionally, and they don't have a lot of activity in their life. And, and there was, I think, the health minister on one of the news channels kind of made reference to that. Um, and the newscaster went after him and was like, oh, so you're saying that the American people are A, B, and C, like we're doing something wrong as humans. Well, some of us are doing something wrong as humans. Um, I remember a friend of mine who has a master's in education for one of her thesis in early education back in probably 2000 at the University of Wyoming, she did a, a study and they discovered that in roughly 99, 2000, there was 1 million American residents, inhabitants that weighed in excess of 500 pounds, right? So that takes into consideration some of our, you know, Andre the Giants too, but you know, he- How, wait, wait, say that number again? So there was a million people in the United States that weighed 500 pounds. That's what I thought you said a million. And I was like, and then as soon as you said it, I'm like, he couldn't have said a million. He must've said a thousand. Yeah. So, and it was so one of those, there's a million people that are like, uh, so, you know, uh, what's eating Gilbert grapes, huge. mom, like you got to cut them out of the house. Yeah. Yeah. Massive. They're Jesus. huge. Right. There's so many that that's why we have a 600 pound life TV show because there's gotta be, you know, PRs, right? So, yeah, yeah. you know, we have a country that's produced a 900 pound human. Right. If I'm not mistaken, you know, we can Google that, but I'm pretty sure we have. Man, how many so, calories of excess would that have to be? Like, well, so, so like that a, brings up a question, right? Because I, I do think that it's, it's a caloric in and out question, but there's gotta be something happening with the quality of the food that's causing a chemical reaction. That's creating the, the huge amount of adipose. Right. So I always thought of it though. I'm like, okay, if we have somewhere in the neighborhood of a million people that are pushing the 500 bills number, that's a lot of 400 pounders. That's a lot of 300 pounders. And my favorite, it's a lot of five foot two, 280 pounders, right? Like, so, yeah, so there's we not have, that many six foot six, 300 pounders rolling around. Exactly, right? Yeah. So we have this obesity issue. Yeah, and they all play in the NFL, yeah. right? And, they, and <laughs> so when you start to look at those numbers, yeah, that's a problem, right? It, we have a luxurious lifestyle. Um, but you can't say that in a lot of forums because you'll get so much pushback, right? So I, I'm kind of like the guy who's had a lot of injuries, has no problem talking to people that have had a lot of injuries and not being like real soft about it. I'm that way when it comes to body fat, because I dabbled in the holy fuck, did you get fat period of my life? So I know what it's like to be an unhealthy 315 pound person. And I know what it's like to be an extremely activity, health conscious, athletic version. So I can kind of empathize with people that have weight issues a little bit because I've dabbled. Like when I finished playing sports and I didn't know who I was and I lost my way. Yeah, I took 
food because I'm not a drinker or, or a drug utilizer. I use food to cope with the fact that I had this huge depressing moment in my existence on the planet. And I went from 240 pounds to 315 of like, you know, khaki wearing drawstring pants, you know, no more jeans in my life. So I can appreciate what causes the psychological downfall of utilizing food to cope with things you're not happy with. However, it does not make it acceptable, right? And that's why I'm not 450 pounds 10 years after I was 350 15 pounds. So when I, when I look at stuff like this, I can appreciate what the struggle that people are having nutritionally that causes obesity. But if there is one thing, as long as you're not, you know, hyper, you know, you're not a fucking Nosferatu sleeping in your house with a mask on and all your, you know, windows drawn right now during this COVID, what it should be telling you is, oh yeah, I, I'm a risk factor. I'm a potential casualty to a very benign virus. And if you can, if you're at that 0.1% where you're like, I could die from something that most people don't even notice, I need to make some serious fucking changes in my life. You know, when I hear music like this, I can't help but think about every cheesy 80s action movie ever. There's just something so great about how clearly fake every fight scene, foot pursuit, and workout montage is. But what's funny is that this approach of creating sexy cut-ups of bullshit workouts with highly questionable application actually exists outside 80s movies and is more prevalent than ever. Like shitty 80s movies, there's so much training garbage out there to sort through these days, and while entertaining, it's scary to think that some people are actually falling for it. Like the distracting pyrotechnics in Die Hard or Commando, or the over-the-top use of body oil in the movie Over the Top, these posers are trying to play off our attraction to new, shiny, and exciting things. But we know you're smarter than that. Hopefully it'll take more than spandex and a booty band or a shirtless selfie to sell you on athleticism. Well, at least some of you. This is why Power Athlete exists. Truly, it's the reason that we beat the drum of performance and have chosen to battle the bullshit for over a decade. The research, testing, and retesting that the coaches at Power Athlete HQ have done to create athletic training programs like Field Strong and Bedrock is unparalleled. And then we chose to further refine our templates to create familiar programs like Bedrock, Jack Street, Lean and Able, and Hammer because we know that specific goals require specific stimuli. Here's where the shameless plug comes in. A lot of work goes into developing the absolute best program and user experience possible. Just ask our partners at Train Heroic who have been with us literally every step of the way and are equally as dedicated to empowering your performance as we are. They are relentless when it comes to ensuring that your journey to self-improvement is propelled by the best possible technology. When you join a Power Athlete program on Train Heroic, the first thing that you should do is take a giant sigh of relief because now you're in the hands of founder and 10-year NFL veteran John Wellborn and his team of world-class coaches. And for less than a dollar a day, you've just become a part of a community of like-minded folks who are all after the same thing performance. So if you're looking for the training equivalent to a white blazer, deep V, perfectly feathered hair, there's no shortage of obliging gurus out there. They're all over social media. 
But if you're tired of the all-show, no-go imposter programs, you have definitely come to the right place. Head to powerathletehq.com backslash training and get started today. Dude, you would think uh, like that's kind of where we've been. I'm like, dude, your your best defense from this isn't some vaccine. It's not social distancing. It's not, you know, tying your sweat, your T-shirt around your face. It's making right. sure that you are healthy enough to survive whatever comes. And that looks like uh, improved immune function and getting some blood work and figuring out some of these markers. And uh, Tex and I were talking about this yesterday because uh, uh, we put a ton of time and effort and work into this really bitch in ACL course. So like right. Power Athlete has been working to build this education module with our methodology and this ACL course, um, you know, we dug into like, you know, not only Texas work, but like my experience. And I know you've had knee issues as well. So we'll rap about it. But um, like this idea of like developing a course that somebody can take to not only ups- uh, like assess and see in real time when somebody is in a position where they might potentially like a set of movements tear an ACL and, and then right. creating the risk factor and then showing them like, okay, here's the risk factors. This is what you need to see. And then here's the training that you can do to help them uh, potentially avoid this. Now, is it going to be a hundred percent? No, because life isn't a hundred percent. But like, if you observe this, if this, then that, and then here's what you need to do. Uh, and right. we were talking about it yesterday, and I'm like, dude, as as jiggy and cool and sh- as this thing is, nobody is into prevention. Like the idea of like, um, like they're not going to buy the course and they're not going to follow it until they have an athlete tear an ACL or they tear an ACL themselves. How many people mm-hmm. are proactive enough to be like, man, I might have a ton of athletes coming through this co- through the wall. Um, I mean, through the door and, uh, you know, I got female athletes and here's the risk factors associated with ACL tears. I should probably take this course uh, that not only goes through like Tim Hewitt's science, but also a ton of practical shows about, you know, landing position, toes forward, knees over the insteps, all like the biomechanical things that you need to teach them how to reinforce it within like strength training and dynamic movement, sprint change of direction, and then going through all the mechanisms we know for a torn ACL. And then having that arm so that when you see it in real time, you're adding to your, uh, you know, uh, coaches, let's say like toolbox, or even a parent who, who sees it, who's like, man, I got a bunch of young athletes. Um, you know, I got three kids. I should take this course so that I can help it. Cause as you know, a torn ACL at a young age, uh, very few people are resilient enough to get past it the same way we are. But so like we, we were talking about this yesterday and I'm like, dude, as jiggy and as amazing and as fucking epic as that course is, People are not into prevention because here's the thing, like people get fat, they get out of shape and whatever. And the only catalyst for them to lose weight and to get into shape is something usually catastrophic. They either have a heart attack, they get a cancer scare, they do something. I remember um, years ago, my brother Ed uh, started training with me and I think he was like 225 pounds, 230 pounds. He's like 6'3". Within three months, he was down to like 210, 208, right? And people used to say to him, like... Not like, hey, you look great, like you got shredded out. It was like, like, what happened? Did you get sick? Like they right. always asked him what happened. And he's like, so wait a minute. I have to have a health scare to fucking get in shape? What about I just wanted to be fucking jacked? And uh, they were like, exactly. they couldn't fucking wrap their heads around it. And uh, it, it's always going back to this idea of like the idea of prevention and being like, you know what I need to do? I need to get up and bust my ass and train hard enough, eat well, do all these things so that maybe in the future, there's some weird fucking virus that comes out that fucking gets all these people. And I don't want to be a casualty. Don't want to be a casualty. And it's, uh, 
and it's not a new phenomenon by any means. I mean, a pound of cure has that quote's been around as long as humans have been finding Was reasons. Was it a pound of cure is worth an ounce of prevention? Is that the way that 100%, works? One hundred percent. That's it. And it's uh, and, and people don't like they don't like complex solutions, uh, which I can understand to a degree, but they don't like complex solutions, even if the result is going to completely change how they live their existence. So for example, when I look at my knee injuries, mine were kind of complex like yours were because it wasn't that we were necessarily doing anything wrong per se. We were just pushing at such a high rate of requirement from our systems that things sometimes break. Um, even if you think you've done everything right. But now when I retrospectively go back as a coach and look at myself, I can look at probably five markers and be like, oh yeah, that was a reason. That was a reason. That was a reason. I probably could have negated that knee injury if I had have just checked off any one of those five things. But again, I was so focused on result at that time in my life that I was stepping over an ounce of prevention because I, it, it didn't seem like it had a big enough play in my life. And I think with a lot of things, especially when you look at the obesity epidemic in the United States and Canada and around the world, it is for people, it is so hard to see the long term when they live in an existence like, okay, so this is going to get a little sideways on you. So we have all these people talking about living in the now, right? And this whole concept of living in the now. People that are trying to get back to the now, in my opinion, a lot of those people are people that have either had enough success financially or lifestyle or other that they have a tendency to live in a world where they're very big picture thinkers and they have a tendency to be very forward in where they're going psychologically. So they're always being reminded to, to reground and recenter. Those are a very privileged few you know, and social media makes it seem like everybody's in that fucking boat, but it's not the truth. When you look at what's happening with the obesity epidemic, you're actually looking, in my opinion, at a lot of people that are stuck so in the fucking now that the only escape they have from the shit that is six inches in front of their face is that dopamine hit from eating that McDonald's cheeseburger because their whole existence is tomorrow. If I can make it tomorrow and if I can get through the next six hours of today and if I can get through my day's work so I get that paycheck so I can have just enough to pay the rent, just enough to, to put food on the table, just enough for my car insurance, if I even have car insurance not to expire this month. They're living so in the moment all the time. It's like fight. It's just fight or flight, fight or flight, fight or flight. And the only relief they get is that chemically created perfect meal that they give to their kids. And it makes that glow come on the kid's face like an accomplishment or the glow come through their body like, oh, this is like five minutes of relief from being just trapped in a never ending cycle of fighting. And it's like those motherfuckers don't live, don't need to live in the now. They need to get out of the now and they need to find a way where in which they can have, and I don't call them motherfuckers because I dislike them. It's just my very excited way of speech. Um, so when those people try to get out of that cycle of thinking, then they can step back and take a moment to breathe and start to make conscious decisions. It is really hard to get those people to be able to think of a long-term projection of what's coming. So it's like, 
when I, when I'm around those people that are in the fight, in the fight, in the fight, and I, and I go to them, I'm like, Hey, do you think we could set aside 30 minutes today to do some exercise or some like planning for the next week? Maybe, maybe we go to Aldi's and we, we buy some prep meals and you spend 30 minutes on a Sunday night prepping healthy meals for your family for the same cost you're going to spend on McDonald's for the next week. Do you think we could maybe do that? Their response typically is so resilient to their lifestyle and, and, and so uh, uh, aggressively against what you're trying to do because they would rather spend that 30 minutes at the end of the day completely decompressing their brain with McDonald's than prepping a healthy week coming out of it. So they, they're stuck in that cycle. Now, if you can break into that cycle and start to get them making some choices, yeah, you're going to reset the system. But resetting that system is going to be so very difficult and it almost has to be done on the individual level. So if you got, you know, a million 500 pounders, you damn near need uh, 250,000 trainers with the mindset that can get into these homes and make a difference because it's you're battling against seven hours of TV watching, you know, four hours of internet surfing, and it's all the same. It's just dopamine, dopamine, dopamine. So they have no reason to see long picture stuff. So it's kind of a tirade into that obesity epidemic, but it's, it's from a very different mindset than I think a lot of people have a tendency to talk about it. These people don't need to read a book on fucking philosophy to recenter their life, to get back into the fight. They need to actually have an intervention where somebody can strike them hard enough before they have a heart attack that they can be like, oh, okay, I, I see what you're saying. And that really is back to like brick and mortar one-on-one situations. And that is a hard sell. Yeah, no, it's uh, next to impossible for people impossible. to actually make that life change before something terrible happens. Like, I mean, the, uh, the one like story that I saw was uh, like the, uh, there's always the enabler in this whole thing. Like when you're 400, 600 pounds, those people can't really get out of bed. Or they can't, right. like, they can't move around. They can't go to the grocery store and, and they can't do anything. And I'm always confused. Mm-hmm. I'm like, if they can't move or if they can't go to the grocery store, or they can't work and they're kind of stuck in this like prison of their own body. Who the fuck is the one bringing them the food? And who's they, feeding them? Well, yeah, who's feeding them? And like, that's the most amazing thing. Whenever you see any of that stuff, there's always somebody who's fucking there enabling them, who's feeding into this, who's like the drug dealer who, you know, wants them to stay, you know, this. And I remember thinking like, why don't you just stop bringing them the food and see how long they last? Because they've done studies where like, hey, you're 500 pounds. Those people don't eat for two or three years. They just drink water. They have enough calories to burn through. And yeah, the, like, I think there was a study in the UK where a guy yeah. did not eat for a year. Yeah, I think it was longer than that. Like he, uh, <laughs> it was like he he ended up it was like t- maybe two years or just shy, and he yeah. was able to go to work through three hundred pounds of just drinking water and not eating. So like they had enough calorie stores. It's um, I'll tell you, man. Like like you said, dude, you got three fifteen. I think my heaviest I was was three twenty six. I mean, but I right. also benched like five thirty five, pretty easy. So like, yeah. uh, like I yeah, was, was pretty strong. Yeah, I was fucking really strong. Um, <laughs> but like, I just remember like getting up and like not really being able to like, I kind of had to like kind of throw myself out of bed. You almost like a turtle on your back, but well, just you like tie your shoes on the side, right? Yeah. Like weird shit that, you, you know, if I see a fat kid with his shoes tied up on the medial side, I know he's not flexible to tie it on the top because yeah. his guts in the way. Yeah. That's, 
So medial shoe tying is a sign of obesity. Yeah, and there's like all these little tricks, man. And it's just like I remember uh, when I, and then like after I was that big and I realized I was too big and I dieted down to like, you know, just over 300 pounds, which still sounds big. I like felt so like small and, and like just athletic and move and this. And I remember right. thinking like, man, like I, I never want to be trapped in a, in a situation mm-hmm. where I'm like a prisoner of my own body. Um, but then, you exactly. know, what? like people become prisoners of their own mind. And I think what we're seeing in this is um, and, and I know as angry as some people are about it, I think somehow some people are almost comforted by this idea of like, yes. I've been reducing human interaction by by texting, by emailing. And like, I've slowly like been social distancing in such a way with all like, you know, I don't have to go out to a bar and meet a girl anymore. I can just, you know, swipe right. on something like you look at all these different ways. And like really the final like cutting of the cord was just this. And, and I think yes. for a lot of people, it's the mask like, hey, it's sitting at the stoplight. The guy comes over and panhandles. I have my mask over so I don't have to fucking wave the guy on or offer him some food that's sitting there or a bar. But like I really think that like what we're seeing and what's amazing to me is I have I, I, like I'm friends or not friends, but uh, social media and whatnot. Like there's people that are like, we need to keep this quarantine longer. And it's like, I'm just getting comfortable in this. And that's fucking scary to me because I feel yeah. like it's the fi- we've, we've reached the final level of fucking, uh, like, what was, the, what was the movie Surrogates with uh, Bruce Willis where the people were, like, in their homes and they had, like, a, oh, yeah, a surrogate yeah. that went out and lived for them and they couldn't, like, they all had anxiety disorder where yeah, they couldn't funny leave story. the fucking house. Justin Sandy, who played for the Cleveland Browns, was one of the surrogate models. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's how I know the movie. I've yeah, never seen it, but I, dude, I, I know he was in it. I, yeah, I've, I've seen the movie, and it was really an interesting social interaction of, like, you know, Bruce Willis, and his, he like, tries to get his wife to go out, and she's like, I, I can't. I can't function right. in society like I uh, because the surrogates are all good looking and the people are aging yep. and they're not doing they're not, you know, this and they're like living in this deal and they feel more comfortable with that surrogate. And like, I think for yeah. some people, like just it's become like uh, it, it's playing into the final level of where we've been headed with this. And like for me, yes. like um, so the, this is the fucking worst. But uh, my kids the, today was their last day of school. Um, they've had to have their, all their school is on like a virtual Chromebook and they have Zoom gotcha. and all this other shit. So they're basically on these computers. And like, as I was right before the podcast, I was sitting up there and they were kind of going through like their end of the year awards. And then they all were like on their Zoom and the teacher took a picture. And I'm like listening to fucking how weird this is. But as soon as they hung up, I had this sense of moment where like I paused and I was like, how do you guys feel? And they were like, oh, they're talking about it. I went over and just shut them all, took them, wrapped them up and locked them in my safe. And I was like, yeah, these are not coming out until next year. I was like, uh, uh, like you guys will not voluntarily if you had like, and I I even said to him, if you guys want to fucking see what's on Netflix or do something, uh, turn on the TV, like a normal kid stuck inside. And like, let me see, because here's the thing. You guys are both over there on your laptops. I don't know what you're watching at least. And I I got into this with my wife. I'm like, I'm okay if they want to watch some TV, they're not going to watch it 12 hours a day, but they want to watch a little TV. I'm totally fine with it because we get to see what they're watching. We only have one TV in our house. And like, and like, even though they have a TV upstairs, I disconnected it. Uh, like we have one TV, um, they have to like have some democratic idea of like what's on. So they each get a show and they get to watch it. They each get one. Then we turn it off and we go through all this stuff, but I want to see what they're watching. And yes. because, uh, I know that the shit that they're watching when it's not on the TV on their computers is way different than what, way different. so it's just like to, to control the message a little bit, but 
man, I was so glad, like, as the teacher was like, okay, I'll see you guys next year. They're like, I was like, close them, give them to me, and locked yep. them in the safe. And they're like, well, when are we going to see those again? I'm like, September. Hmm. September, no more. right? And, and it's uh, like, don't get me wrong. I love having the access to shit that may be so ridiculously inappropriate in terms of how it fits into the societal hierarchy that at least I can look at it. And I'm not talking about violence or sex or things like this. I'm just talking about opinions, right? So if I see someone that has a radical opinion, I want to have the right to be like, oh, that guy thinks the earth is flat. I'm going to watch this for a moment and I'm just going to see what these people believe. I like having that freedom with social media. I really do. I don't dig into it a lot, but I do like that freedom. With that being said, I do not feel comfortable with the silicone socialism that we're now seeing with our large platforms. It makes me extremely uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable that, uh, what was it? There was a brief documentary that popped up and got keeps getting kicked down. I think it's uh, called Pan something, Pandemic. Yeah, or, plan, Plandemic or something. Yeah, Plandemic, right? I watched it. Yeah, I watched the first part of it when it was on YouTube. Very intriguing. Do I agree with it all? No, I have as many questions about her because I know she is an anti-vaxxer. So it's like, okay, what is her agenda? But there's the other side of it where I'm like, wow, she's making some heavy points. The fact that she was deplatformed every time that goes up or the fact that this guy from London Reels getting um, deplatformed, it's just that silicone socialism. and, And it makes me realize that that actually might be an issue that we're running into. It is no mystery to me as a consumer of media content that Joe Rogan is leaving the big platforms. Yeah. It is, there is anyone's. And do you know, and do you know how upset people are about it? Oh, uh, furious, right? Furious that how dare he leave YouTube because you can't comment on, on Spotify. So how, how are we going to comment on this? How are we going to have our voice uh, about his show? If I can't comment like I can on YouTube. Every single time he posts a video, I won't be able to refer to him as a human thumb. Like that is people's psychology, right? Every time he posts a video, it'll be like, Joe looks like a human thumb, right? And you're like, holy shit, every time, burn every band. time. So Burn Band's on now. Yeah, Burn Band is on. Uh, it's, it's. Um, uh, I really like the Silicon Socialism, but just to go on that pan- pandemic deal, I watched it. Um, yep. And what's ama- amazing is all the attacks on the lady all had to do with like all this criminal stuff and, you know, this nefarious yeah. things that she did. <clears throat> and what's crazy, though, and I uh, my, my brother, who's, you know, uh, a lawyer, um, yep. I, I he watched it and we kind of were rapping a little bit. He's like, he's like, you know, uh, I'm around liars all day. He goes, I can't uh, like whether or not the lady's lying or not, I'd have to dig into it. But he goes, the one thing which yep. is interesting is there nobody's really coming out and ref- refuting her claims They're just attacking her as an individual. And if she's so nefarious right. and so fucking criminal. How come she's not behind bars? How come nobody's charged her with a crime? <laughs> and his thing was like, if she's a bad person and she's done all this and she stole and she'd manipulated, she's not behind bars. So nobody's charged her with a crime. And he's, uh, he's like, I right. even looked it up and she's, there's no charges of a crime. And the other one is I haven't seen anybody go through kind of like we did with, um, uh, what's the vegan fucking nonsense, uh, game changers. Game changers. So like when game right. changers came out, Really sharp people, everybody from the Rob Wolfs to the fucking prickliest to prickly, uh, Lane Nortons, went through and yep. did these like amazing step-by-step fucking dismemberment where they went through and challenged every single claim, laid it out in these really epic uh, formats, both in yep. like written in this. I mean, they're like uh, everybody took the charge. 
And the problem with that is that I didn't see the Dr. Fauci's and all the other people that we would be considered experts go through and systematically dismantle her claims. Right. That didn't happen. All they did was they just attacked her as like, you know, she's uh, falsified this and she did all these things, which now whether she did or not, nobody charged her with a crime. And so I'm, I'm not giving any validity to what she has to say. I'm just saying that there was no fucking game changers level of um, like refutement or like refuting of the evidence. And she's not behind bars. So like when I look at my brother and I'm like, so is every person that's guilty behind bars? He's like, of course not because they have good attorneys, but she's never been charged with a crime. And he's like, even like even uh, honest people get charged with a crime. Guilty people always get charged with a crime. Now, whether or not, you know, so that was his thing. And we kind of talked about it and he's like, you know, I don't know why, um, uh, like with like the vaccination stuff, he's like, I don't know why people are so unwilling to have just an intelligent conversation about it. Like, well, like, do- like, why is it that if you like question like, uh, hey, you know what, like, are these vaccines safe? You're a Holocaust denier. Uh, like yeah. if, if I mean, but, yeah. but, that, but that's the level people go. Like if you decide like, hey, in 1978, I was born, you were born at the same time. In 1978, there was, you know, seven to eight vaccines. I think I, I, I got seven of right. them. Uh, and now it's like there's 79 to 83 vaccines that the kids need. And you're like, okay, yep. hey, uh, how about like, like explain to me where this all happened within the human yep. kind of genome evolution, like why all these got added in. Like we used to go to right. chicken pox parties, but now we got a vaccine for chicken pox. We went to mumps parties. Yeah, yeah like MMR, right? Yeah. Well, here's an interesting thing. And this is stuff that the media doesn't talk about or anti-vaxxers or people like this. When I became an American citizen in the beginning, so when I started the process in 2000, so this would have been 2008 when I became a permanent resident through marriage. To get my permanent residency, I have to meet with a government appointed medical professional. So there's, when you become a citizen of the US, like any country, you have to go and get tested for a bunch of stuff and you have to have a physical exam by a doctor who works under the government. He may have a practice or she may have a practice outside of that, but I doubt it. These people are busy. So all they're doing is evals. Now, when they do the eval, they do the basics, right? They want to make sure you don't have STDs. They want to make sure you don't have any diseases that you're bringing into the country. The other one, the big one, is they want to see your inoculation records. And so I grew up in rural Canada. Yes, Canada, socialized country, boom, they knocked that shit out. You don't really have a choice in the matter. It's much like yours were, um, but it was pre-computer system, right? So I had these little blue cards that I had that kind of looked like there was something written on them, right? So to become a U.S. citizen, I had no choice in that conversation. He looked at those cards and is like, sorry, bro, we need to hit you up with all your inoculations. So here I am in 2008 as an adult getting vaccined again um, for the ones they knew for sure I didn't have. MMR was on there. So I think I've had that twice, right? Um, So when I look at this stuff and I look back on it, it's like, you know, it's amazing that we live in a country and Canada is the same now where you can have this moral conversation where you can say, it's my right. This is my body. I don't want to do this. But people have to also remember there's the other side of that conversation where if you want to be a part of a system, you may have to give up some of those inalienable rights to be a part of something. And it's not, 
I didn't give up rights because of some giant conspiracy theory where they were trying to like, where they're trying to put a death sentence on immigrants. Um, what it is, is me going, okay, I want to be a part of this new collective that has a huge amount of benefits to me as a human being. And I have to make the conscious decision whether or not it is worth the risk to be a part of something greater than where I'm coming from. And I, to me, that decision was made at that time kind of for me. There wasn't a lot of wiggle room, you know, and, you know, just so people are aware, we were not under a conservative government. It's not like this, you know, there's all these like political aspects. This is just how the world works. And so when I made that decision to get inoculated, I wasn't really keen on it, but I knew I had no choice because what I was after had greater benefit than what I had. And so there becomes this moral decision that has to be made. You know, if I had kids tomorrow, what would my, as American citizens born into this country, what would my take on it be? I don't know if it would be the same as the decisions I had to make, right? Um, I wanted to be a part of a collective. It's like, I always talk to people this way about the United States when people, so I, I always say, I don't want to get political, but this is a political point. There's a lot of fucking people in this country that are born of blood of American soil that hate this country. And they, and I'll be honest with you, it kind of fucking disgusts me. Like um, when I meet people that are anti-American government, anti-America, uh, and I know that they're born and bred here, they can kind of go piss up a rope. Like they need to get fucked fast. And the reason I say that is both my brother and I, even though our ancestry goes back to the original 3% of this country, our family moved west and into the mountains of Canada as miners. They were, they were chasing the mining industry back when you could kind of skip borders, it was no big deal. So my lineage in Canada uh, genetically is a lot shorter than my American lineage that goes back to the 1500s. So when I came back to the United States, I still didn't come back as an American. I came back as somebody that made the conscious adult choice to choose this country. Right. So when I made that decision, I take it for all its scratches, cuts and bruises. You know, when I became an American citizen, I did so under oath that I would protect this country the way an American born here should based on birthright. And so when I see when I have to deal with people here um, that are super anti-American Americans, it is very strange to me because what it shows to me is a, a projected ignorance, no matter how educated. Um, that is far worse than many other ignorances that exist. Um, but it also, to me, demonstrates a luxury that they don't even accept as reality. They don't realize how good it is for them here that they can actually hate the place they're from like a disobedient adolescent hates their parents that have given them a home and a car, right? Like it's the same psychology. It's like, it's like the kid in the burbs that has $400 a week going into his bank account that fucking loathes his parents. And you're just like, do you have any idea how good it is? Well, you know? but but you understand that from one where you grew up, but also from traveling the world and seeing all these yeah. other places like uh, like all you have to do is travel to the Middle East to realize how many or, or the amount of freedoms that we have as, as Americans where right. like like uh, it just like like the uh, uh, like 
the hilarious part, or it's not hilarious, it's terrible. I mean, like, there's, you know, countries in this world where it's illegal to be homosexual. And, like, yes. if, you're, if, if you're in that gay population, they throw those dudes off of roofs. And yeah, like, I'm pretty I sure mean, it's called Iran. Yeah, it's called Iran. And right? uh, women aren't allowed to uh, show their faces in this. I mean, it's, it's like, yep. it's amazing. And we live in probably the best time. Like, like mm-hmm. even though through this, like the fact that we quarantined at home with Amazon that delivers food, Netflix right. and all of these other streaming, you know, this and you know, the FaceTime and all these other state technologies. Classy meets. Yeah. Right? State classy meets are our good friends in right. Montana. Um, yep. Like it, it's it, it blows my mind when I hear people running it down and I'm like, hey, man, like the the people act like um, however you feel about Trump. But like the thing which is great about the presidency of the United States is it only lasts four years. If exactly. you're this unhappy about the person, that's fine. But go vote him out and then bring in somebody else. And the reason that George Washington, when they wanted him to be permanent, he's like, I did my job. Let the next person lead. Is that yep. somebody, they elect somebody, he's in and out in four years. It's like, I'm, I'm not going to get up in arms about it, uh, like whether or not, you know, second guess this and this. And, you know, I'm like, at the end of the day, like the guy's only here four years. We've had, a, you know, 45 of these dudes. We're going to have a 46. We're going to have a 47. Yep. And it's going to keep going on. What's going to protect. I guess you could say potentially end that is when people stop supporting the country and then they start like trying to cut the fucking balls off of the country to support their own fucking agenda where you're like at the end of the day. And that was, uh, um, with the masterclass with, um, uh, Doris and I can't remember her exact name, but, uh, her husband was a speechwriter. The idea that America is not that fragile, that America will, will survive as long as people are there to support her. And like yeah. uh, what I hear now is more, like you said, that this lack of support and like my mom's in the same boat, you know, as a Canadian citizen that came to the United States, she's right. like, I'm, I'm always amazed at uh, Americans in a, or lack of support for America. And like, that was right. something she's always said, like we always, I mean, dude, our house was adorned with flags on 4th of July. And she's like, it's a really big, it, it's a different thing when you have to stand up and take that oath as an adult, because it means right. something more than just. I've been here my whole life. I don't know anything better. And then there's a ton of people that don't travel anywhere. I mean, all you have to do is go to like any country outside of this country and be like, holy shit. Like the fact I can walk into a grocery store and get anything that I can physically walk into a grocery store that I can go and buy a car and drive and do, you know, get it's, it's a quick, quick note. Grateful for the opportunity and, and John teaching internationally. There was one time and it was, I was living in DC during the 2016 election so got a, a real taste of it. I, I was there t- 2008 through 16, so got a taste of different uh, presidents, elections, and all that process. 2004, excuse me. And uh, traveling, there was one trip in 2016 that Luke and I got caught overnight in Istanbul in the airport right. and then had <laughs> just enough cash to get visas to then leave the airport to get a hotel but it was maybe three, four hour ordeal. Well, we were trapped there or going through the process and there were families just camped out and it was clear they had been sleeping in this airport stranded because they couldn't get visas in or out. And just that made me so grateful. And then I come back to just this hate inside the 2016 election. I'm like, man, well, uh, I got to get to Texas. But I mean, uh, does it, doesn't this always happen with entitlement? It, it like, it's the, um, and, and, uh, uh, Derek, you, you'll know the, uh, the quote better than I will, but didn't like the King of Saudi Arabia say, um, my father rode a camel. I drove a Mercedes. My son will drive a Rolls Royce. My grandson will ride a camel. 
like the idea that like like we you know when uh, the wealth and the success gets too far away that like we just end up going like you know generational wealth only lasts three uh, three generations three but generations like, you know the idea that like you know my father rode a camel my grandson will ride a camel like uh, this idea of like they when they get too far away from like what it took to be successful you don't arm them with the skills to maintain it and then it fucking gets dwindled yeah, that's exactly it. And I, I think there's so much to that. Like, I think Kim Kennedy also had a quote, um, you know, strong men create weak societies, weak societies create weak men, weak men rebirth strong. Or, uh, uh, that I, wasn't Tim Kennedy. That's an author. I totally butchered the shit yeah, out no, of it. I'll, I'll, I'll pull it up for you. It's, uh, Please pull I, it up. I actually know this quote because I just used it the other day with somebody uh, that was, um, shit, hold on, hold on. Well, well, you're pulling it up. I'll reiterate a story I had, like, you know, with oh, the amount sorry. of hard times, hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times nice. create weak men, and weak men create hard times. G. Michael Hopf. It's such a, an amazing quote, right? And to bastardize it, I apologize, but yeah, it happens. It makes me think, though, in terms of travel in relationship to, to, to what Tex was saying, it's sort of funny. Like, Istanbul is a unique country to get stranded in. I've only, in all of my international travel, uh, I've been stranded twice, two completely different experiences. Once, I got turned back in Germany uh, on my way to Saudi because my visa had an issue. So I land, you know, I'm connecting to to Riyadh through Frankfurt. And they're like, no, you can't go to Riyadh. You can't leave Germany to go there because we'll get in trouble. I'm like, well, what do I do? They're like, got to get a visa. I'm like, sweet. So the only place I get a visa is London. So I catch a flight from Germany to London, go to the embassy in the UK for Saudi Arabia, get a stamp on a piece of paper, get a stamp on a piece of paper, jump on a plane from London to fly to Riyadh. Okay. So that's Western culture. That's how it's done, right? The other time, I was not allowed to leave Saudi Arabia. Now, I'd been going there for six years. So I'd become maybe a little too comfortable in the world I had come to understand and work in over there. And it's one thing not to be allowed into a country. It's another thing not to be allowed out of a country. Right. And so I don't think I've ever told the story live. I remember texting it to somebody because I was fucking mind blown. Um, so what had happened and it wasn't that long ago, again, it was a paperwork problem. So Saudi Arabia has a deal where if you're over there working or under a visa, your employer, which can be a problem if your employer is not a good person, needs to stamp your exit, meaning which you don't owe any money to anybody. You don't owe anyone anything. So they let you leave, right? Now, if you owe stuff, they don't give your passport back, man. You're not leaving that country until you make amends with whatever you owe. So if you owe a financial debt over there and the government's aware of it, you're not leaving that country, right? So can you imagine if the United States did that? If you know how, like say if, if President Trump tomorrow announced that all people working in the United States are not allowed to return to visit their homeland unless they have a clean bill. Holy fuck, this country would go apeshit. Well, that's the way the rest of the world works. So I'm getting ready to leave. <clears throat> Flights out of Saudi Arabia typically are 2 a.m. Um, so you get there at you know, 10, 30, 11 o'clock because it take a while to get sorted. And uh, I get to the counter 
And now it's not like you're going up to TSA or you're going, you're going up to the Delta counter. <clears throat> you're going up to the military counter, right? It's a military group of individuals and they're standing behind plexiglass. I slide my passport under. He looks at it. He looks at me. His English isn't great. He's like, no, no, can't leave. I'm like, oh, what do you mean? He's like, no, no, can't leave. Get this signed. Well, that doesn't mean. I have no idea what he's talking about. It's a digital thing in their system that he has access to. And I'm like, what do you mean? So this goes on five minutes, six minutes, 10 minutes. And then finally he goes, your visa, not complete, can't leave. I'm like, so you're telling me I can't leave the country? I'm not allowed to go home? He's like, yes, correct. So me being like me, I just kind of lean back. I'm like, oh, because I knew it, it was a clerical bullshit, right? And I'm like, oh, motherfucker, right? I just say it to myself, looking at the sky. Holy shit, did the world come to an end at that moment? He looks at me, looks to another guy, speaks to him in Arabic, points next door and he goes through another door and I'm like, ugh. and then a guy looks up furious points to the other door. And I'm like, Oh, I'm in trouble. I'm, I'm in real trouble. I've been I'm doing so good for six years. So I go into this next door and there's like literally like a general that runs the airport in his fatigues, leans back in his chair. He's looking at me. This other guy's just like yelling in Arabic to, at him. He's waving my passport. And so I'm like, okay, stay cool. This is not good. And the guy just leans forward and he looks at me and he goes, tell me, he goes, why did you call his mother a motherfucker? Or why? And I'm like, I don't understand. He's like, and then, and then the guy who I'd been speaking to in English, he says, you fuck my mother. And I'm like, oh no. I'm like, no. I'm like, I, you know, I apologize profusely. I'm like, it was a poor use of words. It's, it's a bad, uh, bad Canadian habit, yada, yada, yada. And so this goes on for about 10 minutes. Finally, the, the general or colonel, whatever he was, takes a passport. He goes, here's the deal. You, you don't leave Saudi Arabia today. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, what do I need to do? He goes, honestly, he goes, it's no big deal. He goes, you call your employer. They type something into a computer. He goes, you get on a plane. He goes, but not today. He goes, normally I would let you do it. I don't think so. So I'm like, well, what do I do? And he's like, well, he goes for security reasons. He goes, your bag can't be taken off the plane until after the plane departs. Right. So we hold it. So you he goes, you're going to hang out here until 6am. He goes, you're going to sit here by yourself. You're going to wait for your bag. And then you're going to go home and solve this problem. And even though in the big scheme of things, it wasn't that big of a deal to miss a flight, to sit for an extra 24, to go back to my residence and hang out until the next night and just get on a plane, all the digital stuff fixed. But to have somebody tell you that you couldn't go home was such a fucking mind fuck for me that it was amazing how much it changed my political beliefs in this country. All of a sudden, when I got home, I'll be honest with you, I wasn't center left like I used to be on a lot of stuff. I started to, you know, and I've always been a relatively conservative guy and, and socially liberal. I'm Canadian. That's pretty typical for us. All of a sudden, I was a little more 
oh yeah, you know what? We need to, uh, we need to lock some of this shit down. We need to, to get together. <laughs> we need to, we need to stop fighting over some of this stuff. We need to stop pushing these agendas really extreme one direction or the other. Yeah. We need to like all get on the same page because shit here is pretty good. And if you start taking things for granted, it can change really quickly. Well, the, right? uh, um, like, I'm probably similar to you in that you're like, you know, kind of socially, I guess you could say socially liberal, fiscally responsible, this kind of idea yeah. of like, hey, you know what, like, but actually I'm starting to kind of come to the conclusion that that kind of socially liberal thing is almost probably a little more conservative and that like, I feel like everybody has a right to their opinion, right? Like yes. I, and what's amazing is I feel like um, uh, the minute that like there's a opinion that somebody doesn't like, it has to be stomped out. And I'm like, dude, in this country, I have the right to like or dislike the presidency. I have the right to dis dislike the policies. But at the end of the day, like I don't have the right to stop other people from believing what they believe. Um, and uh, like the one thing that scares me, and we had Tony Blower on the podcast discussing fear, is what a powerful tool fear is for cultivating and really hurting the masses. And the analogy I'll give was uh, something that my next door neighbor uh, who has goats, which is pretty ironic. I watched this. I, we did this with my kids a couple of years ago. Like uh, they have like all these, you know, he has one big sheep dog. And so goats and my daughter asked like, hey, like how come that one dog can manage like these 50 goats? And my comment right. to them was like, well, look at the goats. What are they doing? And they're like, they have their heads down. They're eating stuff facing the grass. I'm like, great. What's the dog doing? He's just sitting around kind of looking, just kind of laying there relaxing. So then all of a sudden the dog stands up and he starts barking and running at the goats. And then the goats go, uh, and then they start moving. And the way right. he herds the goats into their new place is then all of a sudden, once they get to the new place, he lays down and then they put their heads down. And my, the thing is, I was like, man, this is the greatest metaphor I've ever seen for the American people and for the media. Like people are so focused on having their heads down in the grass, not realizing what's happening around. And then the media or whatever it is, the polarizing ding starts barking and making noise and running as fast as they can. And what that does is it forces them to move. And then the minute that right. it stops and quiets down, they put their heads down because they don't want to look around. And so like we're having this like amazing existential moment. I feel like I'm really have fucking knocked this fatherhood thing out as I'm sitting out here on a, on a ranch here in Texas, you know, looking at these goats. And then all of a sudden, as we're sitting there, I see like these, like, and he's got like a couple big African goats. All of a sudden, I see like one of the big African goats walk over and mounts one of the smaller little female goats and pull, you know, and all of a sudden his Twizzler dick comes out and he like... <laughs> pounds this little goat like four times like does this like shake and then falls over on his side with his twizzler hanging out and like like deathly silence and they were like what what did that big goat do to the little goat and i'm like same thing that the fucking government's doing to us like that was an <laughs> analogy of like uh, like that that's the government we're the little goats and they were like but what was he doing and i was like oh god like, ask, ask your mother yeah i was like yeah I, I think that's what i said i was like i talk to your mother about that one but it, it was a perfect perfect fucking moment like i had this deal where you know and it's true it's it's how one dog is able to manage all these goats is that he uses fear and movement and all these other scare tactics and the thing which scares me is that people's heads are so fucking stuck within like a phone and social media yeah. and all this other fucking nonsense, which is crazy because like, think about this, uh, 25 years ago, like, let's say, all right, so we're 44. So when we were 19, 20 years old, none of this really existed. I remember one dude I knew had a cell phone 
And yep. it was like, I think he had it to play the snake game. And like, you know, like somebody called, left a message at home. They're like, uh, I remember having to like email in a paper, which was a big deal. And like, yeah. there were these like, you know, bulletin boards and like, I'm 19. I remember I had a computer, but like the internet was still this like idea, like, like we knew it was there. We just didn't know how to put in all the discs to get there. And like yep. all of this stuff didn't exist, but yet you were forced to like go out to a bar and meet a girl. Or if you saw a girl somewhere, she was at the library stacks. You went back the next day to try to like run into her or you were in a class and this, I mean, microfish and like having to go to office hours and then going to, um, the copier store to get all of your periodicals uh, printed because you had to read them like, like education and like meeting people and, and going out and doing these things required fucking effort. And for people to go yes. out of their houses and like actually go and do something. And now we're in this kind of like, let me just sit at home and have all this shit available to me when uh, right. it, it's, it's created like a level of laziness. Like I appreciate the access to information that we have, which blows my fucking mind, but it's yeah. made access to information so easy that you don't have to work for it anymore and you don't have to work for anything. Like, like the fact that like, um, I like blows my fucking mind that you just have an app, you look at the picture and swipe. And if they swipe you, you go meet the person. Like there's no game right. anymore. Like you don't have to go into a bar and use some awful pickup line and potentially get shot down 50 times until you realize like I shouldn't use pickup lines or I should have right. my hair look like a fucking asshole or I shouldn't you know, be a dick. And like all yeah. of these social kind of like bumps and con, you know, conflicts and things that you run into to kind of smooth the, you know, to smooth the stone in such a way that like you become a human, uh, is fucking removed. And it's completely like, removed. It, it, like it's in the training space, man. Like, like the reason, and you know this, like the reason you, you know about somebody is because somebody did something fucking amazing. Now it's yes. like, it, that doesn't exist anymore. And I, I, I don't know. Um, I think it's better for the mere fact that the three of us can sit and have this amazing, meaningful conversation with you and mammoth, uh, us here in Austin. And like, we can have this where this probably wouldn't have existed. But like, what's that doing for people developing their human skills? I don't think it is. Because I mean, no, as, as amazing as this conversation is, the conversation with you and I sitting at this exact table will for be ever one of my favorite human interactions. Right. And there's no way to replicate that. So, shameless plug here. That was from the 2017 Power Athlete Symposium. And that conversation can be found on YouTube <laughs> with a quick search of Derek Woodsky and power athlete. Yeah. I mean, dude, like, uh, so well, I, I, yeah, I don't know what to make of it. Even like when I, when I look at the power athlete group that you guys have acquired through the information that you put out, it's like the fact that you created a symposium where everyone can come together. It amazes me as somebody that was invited into the fold and then has stayed peripheral for quite some time now is the relationships I have with your power athlete coaches and, you know, practitioners, whatever term they want to use for themselves. It's significantly different with those that I met at the symposium than those that just found me on Instagram. Right. So like when I get messages from people, I recognize where I'm like, Oh yeah, I remember that guy or that girl. I had a conversation with them it's amazing to me how much different my interaction is with them. And, and it's not that it's any less or more genuine, but I'll be the first to admit if I've had a conversation with someone in real life, they're going to get a, a much more prompt response 
than somebody I've never met that I only know through social media, regardless of how many follows they have. Because there is that, that level of, of humanness that comes to it or a, a level of just comfort I have knowing I've actually met someone. I just feel more, you know, not like so metaphysical, but I just, there's a better connection. There's a more uh, long-term acknowledgement. I don't have a trust issue with them uh, to the same issue that I'm going to have with someone that just reaches out on Instagram. If I've never met you and you just like, blow out of the water with some crazy question with tons of emotional depth. <sighs> You're not getting much from me because there's a part of me that sees that as a romance novel, right? And I'm not talking about like girls in particular because it's, it can be on any topic, but <clears throat> as somebody that used to write a lot of fiction when I was going through college, there's what people don't realize the, the, the reason a romance novel is so fucking great for people, especially the market that it's sold to, which is predominantly females over the age of 35, is when you write something, fiction or nonfiction, there is no filter to the words that are going into the person. So when you write something fictional, and you'll see where I'm going with this, motherfuckers. So when you write something that is fictional, um, and you know it's fictional, you read the words in a narrator's voice that is your own and you apply characters to those words as the person is shaped and formed through the narration or through the writing, but you create it, you fill in all the details that make it yours. So the way that a, a good author writes something fictional is they give you enough framework, but you have a tendency to create the image of the faces. You have a tendency to create the sounds of the voices. You have a tendency to create the way they look. That's what's magical about a romance novel is it doesn't matter if Fabio's on the cover, you know, uh, Mrs. Roberts, when she's reading it, her character looks the way she wants them to look when she's actually doing it. The, the mysticism's created. Well, social media, especially when people really started getting into it, people became incredible fictional writers, right? Because when you start texting that chick or you start texting that dude or you're Instagramming them or Facebooking them back in the day and it's messaging, they have an idea of what you look like because, you know, Fabio's on the cover. So if they're okay with that initial image, then from there, it really becomes the author's ability to like manifest this perfect writing style. And, and I'll, I fully admit it, you know, 15 years ago, I could write some fucking magic to people through social media because I was a fictional writer, right? So I could just like, write. I just be like, oh, this is amazing. I can, and then I sort of realized I'm like, oh my God, I'm like, this person's having a really strange reaction to my words. I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. Because they're interpreting it with their personality. So they're making it perfect. They're filling in all my areas. So if I'm a good writer of words and I can really kind of elaborate a thought, it becomes instantly permeable to their brain and their subconscious and they make it their own. And so we get this false sense of confidence, especially in our personal training industry, because it's the same thing. If you have someone that is a really good author that can really manifest an image through fiction to create the illusion of grandeur in that person, right? A, it's going to make you some good money if you can follow through. But so many of these people can't follow through. All they can do is create this false narrative that is this magical, like, 
kaleidoscope of imagery of greatness and the person just takes it in. They just read it without filter. Cause when you say it to somebody, okay, like hypothetically, you know, telling somebody, I think you're the most beautiful woman I've ever met. Your, your hair is like magic. You write this bullshit on paper takes no confidence. You go up to a woman you have never met and you're like, you are the most beautiful woman I've ever met in my life. And here is why you have got some balls on you and she may love it or she may hate it. It's indifferent, but you write that takes no, takes no effort or confidence because you're not there at the moment of delivery. And that person can take that information and it just gets in their head. As soon as you read it, you can't unread it. That's why there's the saying that you can't unread something, right? Whereas if you hear something you don't like, you can immediately bounce back and be like, Hey, I don't fucking dig that. And it creates an interaction on a human level that starts to shake out all the bullshit, but you can't unread it. You can't unread it. You can tell yourself, oh, they just made it up. Or you can tell yourself, oh, wow, this is amazing. But there is something to that. And everything we do now is through the written word. And that written word goes directly into the subconscious and floats around in there and bounces off the walls until it either rattles itself into oblivion or it locks itself into a new psychological state where the person that hears it, it's either going to be positive, negative. It's either going to push them in one direction or pull them in another. And I think people have to understand when they're reading all of this stuff, that they're being much more impacted by somebody's narrative that they're writing than they would if that person had to do the sell in person. The sell in person is so much more, um, difficult, but it's also because of body language and energy and interaction and how two people connect. It's also your natural defenses are so much more in place in a live one-on-one -on -one conversation. It is very difficult for someone to penetrate uh, a stranger, to penetrate you with their beliefs. Well, A, you could physically remove yourself from the situation, but also we're designed to read all that bullshit. But when it's written, and we don't have body language, we don't have personality, we don't have body odor, we don't have whether or not someone's attractive or not initially. That goes right in and your brain just rolls it around like a song and you have to determine whether or not the lyrics are ones you like or don't like, but irrelevant to that, they're still inside your subconscious. So I think people have to be a lot more cautious of the effect that all this written text of feeling and emotion and idea is actually having on people and actually how much it is changing and influencing even your own thinking without realizing. Yeah. I recall a, from summer strong 10 and your goal presentation, I'd like to go back to yeah. the goals, but one note that I remember is you said mediocrity is a human trait. And right. if you're a dreamer and you're a striver, there's people that will start to try and pull you back down. Well, that's the age old of the crabs in the bucket. Crabs you in know, the bucket, right? You know, if you throw one crab in a bucket, it'll crawl out. You throw two crabs in a bucket, the one crab will crawl out, and uh, it'll, the other crab will pull it back in. You throw three or four crabs in the bucket, and one crawls out, they'll kill that crab. So it's, it's pretty interesting that, like, you know, uh, I think social media, and a lot of times, there's just the crabs in the bucket, man. So Yeah, the marginalization of... I don't even know if it's, if it's so much responsible for marginalizing people is it's allowing a, a big, thick band of societal marginalization to be like accepted. Right. So like 
when before social media really jumped off, uh, you know, you only had to deal with maybe a handful of naysayers in your circle that didn't, you know, like John's brother lost weight and he obviously had an illness. He didn't have work ethic. Right. So it's like, there's the number of people you deal with on a, on a personal level, maybe a handful, but because we live in this cyber community, you know, the Silicon socialism, we have so many people that have the ability to make that comment. Um, that with that being said, the, the wave uh, of mediocrity is just so much more, you know, daunting to deal with because the average person wants to drink a gallon of whiskey and sit in their house for four weeks, watching Netflix, not going to work until somebody tells them they have to, not until someone tells them they can go back to work. Like that's the difference. Like there's so many people waiting out this pandemic right now because they want to wait it out. They want to lay on their couch for six hours a day and actually feel some sort of moral uh, comfort to that. Now, don't get me wrong. There are probably some people that have been pushing the red line of life a little too hard. And they're so out of balance that the pandemic has actually probably been good for them. They've actually had some time to like reassess family, reassess lifestyle, reassess the fact that they probably have been traveling too much or working too much. I get that. There's going to be that positive effect come out of this. But again, that's the minority. They were the ones climbing out of the crab bucket in the first place, and they needed to come back and sort of recenter, right? The vast majority of people are doing menial amounts of effort in life. And they took like, like a marginal existence and let it drop down to, I mean, what it is, hiding in your house, invisible from the world around you. Like, I'm no expert in terms of psychology, but I do know having dealt with some individuals that key characteristics of PTSD in our returning men and women from overseas is self-isolation right? That is a key thing that you look for. When they came back from, from being overseas and, and fighting on behalf of us, uh, do they self-isolate? Do they pull themselves away from society? Do they shelter in place? Do they do these things because they need to desensitize themselves, which oddly enough also massively increases depression and potential for you know self-harm? Those are the things that people are now doing by choice as if it's a good thing. That's not a good thing. Well, they've Listen, made it appear I, to be noble that you're doing the noble they, thing by hiding in your house, which yeah. is, is a really interesting narrative, man. Like, like I, uh, like you're somehow you're noble and you're doing good by laying on your couch and getting fucked up every day, watching Netflix and not yep. getting outside. Why, well, you know, I, I can't even leave yeah. my home and you're just like, Holy yes. shit, dude. Like when has that ever been the case? Ever been the case. I mean, and, and so when we're looking at that, my big concern coming out of this is, a, you know, and I know some people that are a little more clever and a little more ahead of the curve have already started to promote it because they've probably got some side of financial incentive on the backside. But there will be a, a mental awareness and mental health awareness that will hit us very hard on the backside of this pandemic because people will have to readjust. And, uh, you know, what about those people that 
aren't, you know, maybe the most confident or the most aware and they come out of their cave after the plight and uh, society shuns them. So how does someone deal with the fact that they're now being shunned by a society that they were just desperately hanging on to anyway? What is it going to do? It's going to make them climb back into their cave, you know, and, you know, God forbid they put a, a, a bullet in themselves because they feel like they no longer have a purpose for existence. Like people have to be ready for all of these darkness and dark thoughts that come out of such a, a, a terrible time. Not to mention the fact that six to eight months from now, we are going to see global famine that we cannot comprehend. And that's the part that the uh, the World Health Organization, for all their faults, I'm not a fan, um, but that's one thing that they have alluded to because they've already started talking about it in countries like Africa and that maybe aren't even being hit that hard by COVID itself, but they're being hit by the fact that nobody's shipping anything right now, or they're hit it, being hit by the fact that produce and foods are sitting on docks because no one can get to them. South Africa is a good example of this. Or, that nor, or nobody's being a tourist. Like I, um, like I donate yep. uh, the guys from VetPaw who defend all the animals in Africa. Uh, right. They're in huge financial problems because nobody's traveling to Africa and all of those state parks and all, I mean, sorry, the uh, uh, national parks associated with the animals, uh, the way that they fund it is through tourism and people coming in yes. and like, you know, hunting parties and this and they go through, I mean, that's how they fund it and it's, it's how they pay to have these guys basically protect these animals against poachers. Uh, yes. and, and like, it's it, like, it's fucking awful because now it's like, there's no flights and these places are closed. So it's not even like I could, anybody can even go there. And so yeah, and uh, people, yeah, yeah. crime doesn't stop, man. Crime doesn't stop just because we're in a pandemic. That's the other thing that people don't realize. Opportunists are going to be opportunists. The fact that we haven't had as much crime in the United States is probably more due to the fact that everybody's in their home. You know what I mean? So it be an ease go down, right? Well, that's how they but, reduced yeah. all the killings in Chicago. Uh, so all of a sudden, like, uh, you know, the gun violence through Chicago fell through the floor and it was like, oh, like the positives. And like, I, there are some positives. Like, I think uh, I saw yesterday that for the first time in recorded history, you could observe Mount Everest from like yes. whatever that town is. Kathmandu, I yeah, think. And it, like they, they had never had that level of pollution in recorded time reduced. Uh, the fact that like there was, uh, I saw a picture of Buffalo on the beach in Catalina, which has never right. happened. Um, never. Like, uh, like I, you know, there was another picture I saw where like all these elk, I think somewhere in um, like, you know, it had to be Idaho, Montana, Colorado. I think it was in Colorado. There was hundreds of elk laying on a football field. Hmm. Like, right. uh, like it, it's pretty amazing that I we've did, seen. Did see one beautiful picture of deers and cherry blossoms in Japan. Yeah. So it was right. beautiful. Well, it, it just yeah. makes you realize yeah, that in, in these photos. two months, uh, the earth has like reduced carbon emissions by like 70%. And like all of the things that they thought were irre- uh, unreversible uh, are reversing. And so, like, they yes. realized, they were like, so wait a minute, if the Earth just got rid of us in probably, like, anywhere from two to, like, eight months a year, all of a sudden, the Earth is going to regenerate. So this idea of, like, poisoning the Earth, and I, I actually, um, it was kind of like, and I theorized this with my wife, I'm like, what if, like, 
the summer vacation idea of like, hey, like the kids are on summer vacation. Uh, we implemented something like this to reduce travel and reduce admissions where they were like, hey, they were saying, hey, like of our current admissions, if we could reduce it by 20% by saying like, okay, what, what we normally do in 12, we go down to 10 and we do something similar to this. Like not, I'm not saying shelter in place, but like just no, reduce I, I travel, it, yeah. reduce driving, people work from home, whatever it is. And we, we do that for two months. Would it effectively alter some of the trajectory we see within like, you know, climate change and this, and you went through all these other factors, sure. but nobody I, wants to examine that piece. No one wants to examine it. And I think it like if someone was to say it to me logically and the media didn't turn it into a talking point right against the left, if someone said to me, all right, so for the months of, uh, let's say hypothetically, let's say March and April, every year, the whole world goes to uh, minimal commuter traffic, work from home, large industry uh, cuts down to 40% production. And we know it's coming every year and we prepare for it. We set aside, no one's sick. It's not going to overrun hospitals. Uh, there's no shelter in place, but there's shelter on foot. You know what I mean? Like if you can walk, walk, if you live in a place where it's not an option, you have to drive a car fine. Cause that's still happening out here in the Sierra Nevadas. I would probably be pretty okay with that. Like there was a part of me that would get on board and probably get on board pretty fast if I could see a benefit like we're seeing right now when you see images of, of India where the pollution goes from being so thick that you can't see someone 100 feet away, it looks like a dust storm, to completely blue skies. Like, And if that was something that everyone could get on board and no one was going to make a big deal out of it, I think we could probably reset a lot of issues that we're having. And I, I think you'd see a, a potential cascade of health benefits like emphysema, asthma, uh, <laughs> immune conditions that we can't find a, a cause or a solution for. All of a sudden start to clear up and you realize that a lot of it is just environmental stress. You know, I, I, I do think there is a positive to that. Will anyone get on board? I doubt it. Maybe man, I can go to Devil's Post Pile and not have to fucking wait in line with like a hundred other people. True story, dude. You know, I've been to Devil's Post Pile once. Only two of us were there. We went at the perfect time of the year. Oh. You got to go after. You got to go when the when the waterfall seems like it's no longer interesting, right? Ah. You got to go when people are like. You know, you go late October where it's like forty-eight degrees and people are like, "Oh, I gotta." bundle up to go up there and it's like yes dude yes, uh, last time we were there we uh we tr we like tried to get passes we couldn't go because you know like all the tour buses and that so then you got to yeah. go with the tour bus and the whole deal uh like we like so when i was a kid like that was like every time we went for the summer it was like we went to devil's, devil's post pile and then like when i tried i was like talking about the kids are driving up we see the minarets you know we're going through everything we go there and all of a sudden we can't get fucking tickets to go and i was like god damn it so like now like i told the kids and like it's kind of the joke they're like are we gonna go see that devil place and i'm like yes we're gonna go see the devil <laughs> yes. place I, I tell you what it's one of the only places i've been to where archaeology or earth looks like it was affected by an alien culture yeah like it's so bizarre and you know what's funny? A small town like this is a good example. I think a little bit of what we're seeing and what we're seeing is there are percentages of local populations that maybe aren't directly affected by the tourism. Man, just like guys that are sheltering in place because they don't want to interact. There's a lot of people that don't want 
that side of things to come back here. You see it in the, how they talk. They're like, oh, finally, this place is the way it should be. Yeah, we're 22% occupancy for the town, right? Like, you know, of course you think it's amazing. For example, the only set of stoplights in town have been blinking red since COVID hit us, right? Because no one's fixed them. And it's like, it's the running joke now that the four-way stop will go back to an alternating light when they finally actually know Dude, it used safe. to be a stop sign. So like, yeah, we were like, right. right when you come into town, that used to be a stop sign. I remember when they put in the traffic light, my dad was like, oh, it's all over. Uh, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, like, like when we, we used to drive up there, it was so small. Like I remember like in the middle of the summer going to like Lake George or Horseshoe or those places and yep. like looking around and like, there might've been like three boats in the lake and 20 people. And then like all of a sudden last time we were up there, like we got up there, like we, we got to the, our fishing spot yeah. by 6am and it was fucking packed and like, packed. uh, you know, it, I mean like my dad told me years ago, you can't stop progress. And like, you right. know, like trying to remember how things used to be, all that does is put you in a reactionary, like old fart where it's like, ah, things weren't used to be like this. And it's like, well, shit, yep. when you grew up, things used to not be like that. So like, you can't stop progress, but I don't always know. Uh, well, not all progress is bad, but not all progress is good. Um, but right. I'll tell you, like in, in a place like Mammoth, where all of a sudden now you're at 22% occupancy rate and you're having, you know, uh, businesses that support the local, not only community, but are like, you know, pillars within it that are, like you said, like all of a sudden the, you know, the pizza joint goes out down the street, you know, and like this yep. place goes out. I mean, like when we drove up there the first time and Grumpy's wasn't there anymore. Like, right. I, uh, like I, I don't know if you remember, but there was that burger spot Grumpy's, which had this like shuffleboard table. And like, that was our fucking spot. Like we posted up, my parents would drink, listen to music, we'd get burgers and we'd play this shuffleboard game for hours. They had video yep. games, arcades. And like, I remember that when we drove up there and it wasn't there, I was like, I don't even think I have my Grumpy shirt anymore. Like, like, but like, uh, yeah. now something better is there. And it's like, I, I think, um, people, and I was thinking on this, like people live in a place like Mammoth, not because they they want to have like, uh, um, you know, be surrounded by people. They want to have a deep interaction with the nature and then they want to have interactions with people that are similar to them. Um, right. And like, uh, you know, like the idea of like, you know, being able to get on and like, dude, I love not only your Instagram, but Megan's with like all the places like I see you guys riding bikes down in June uh, Lake and like it's so cool because I get to live vicariously because I've been to all those places and I like see something new and I like tag it and I'm like oh man I'll send it to my brother and like it's just uh, for us man like having grown like like I like I I look at it like that was our second I mean was our second home so it's uh, it's it's neat to think like um, to be able to see it like that, but also a little scary because what supports that place and allows it to go up is the small businesses and the people and the ski and that. Right. And like, what does Mammoth look like if it doesn't have a fucking ski resort? It doesn't. It, it ceases to exist. Town. Yeah, this town would not exist without a ski resort. Eighty um, percent of the homes here are second homeowners that are either used occasionally, two to four weeks a year, or they are permanently on the, uh, like Airbnb market. Right. So that's the town. Um, you know, when we got hit with the initial closure, the first week that, uh, the ski hill closed here, the immediate closure was 1800 jobs immediately. So that was 1800 employed full-time residents gone. And then there was another wave and another wave. And by the time that like Megan was laid off or furloughed, I guess would be the technical term. Um, she was about four and a half weeks after she made it quite a while because of the type of work she did here. Um, 
but I think, you know, total Altera hit like 17,000 uh, with all their ski resorts. So when you look at that type of, of setback, you know, what a lot of people don't realize is with transitional workers in the tourist industry, meaning people that probably work anywhere from six to nine months a year, when something like this kind of hammers you, it'd be like the personal training industry. Anybody that kind of was hanging on and wasn't sure if they should stay in it is probably out of the industry after this because there's no job security. So a lot of people have this idea that Mammoth come November is just going to like turn a switch back on and all 1800 seasonal workers will be waiting at the door. That's not the case. You know, a large percentage are overseas. Um, They come here seasonally. uh, So that might be an issue. Another part of it is people that were, you know, maybe hard workers that love this industry maybe we'll start to look at this industry as, oh, this is what I'll do for fun. It's time for me to go get a job in LA or Newport Beach or wherever and then come up on the weekends. And that number, you know, hypothetically, let's say if we have 500, which I think we do 500 ski coaches that work here in the winter doing lessons that were all like just cut zero hour, you know, immediately because they're, you know, considered low rung employees. You know, what if you only have 250 next year and then it takes, you know, and then the year after that 300. So now there's a massive demand, but not enough people to do the job. You know, they're not going to pay the ones that are here more. It's just going to lower the value of the service that's provided. And I see that happening a lot in our industry, which is similar in the personal training world. The, it, just because people don't come back to the industry uh, maybe even they were good coaches, et cetera, don't come back to the industry after this, doesn't mean the ones that stuck it out were the best. you know. And that's something that we got to get ready for from a, an ed- educator standpoint, from a coaching standpoint, is those that stick it out and are back in our industry once the gyms open up, that's not the cream of the crop. Not always, right? So we have to be ready for the fact that the, the five coaches out of the 10 you had at your CrossFit box that stick around, those just might be the five lifers, but it doesn't mean they're the five best coaches. Or the, or the um, five other people that don't have anything better to do. I don't have anything better to do, right? And so, you know, you may have lost because the one thing we've always seen in the personal training industry is the, uh, the old IT programmer that gets burnt out on life. <laughs> this, I saw this so much when I was, when I was teaching and lecturing. Be like, hey, what did you used to do before you became a personal trainer? I was an IT professional. I was a programmer. Oh, right. Or my favorite was, I was a lawyer. Oh, no kidding. So why your personal mortgage industry, industry, right? So so why why your personal trainer? Well, you know, I had this one trainer, and they got me into really good shape, and it was super cool, and I loved it so much that I decided to make it a career. Gotcha. But you you don't you're not really good at this. Like, I hate to tell you, but you were a person that needed a trainer because you had deficiency in life. And now you are the expert. You're actually not. You're, you're just somebody that thought this would be cool to do. Well, the problem is, is a lot of those people may still be around after this. And the other people that were a little more fringe, like someone that maybe got into strength and conditioning because they loved the, the science, the coaching, the interaction, the passion of it. They're like, oof. This isn't a very stable career. Maybe I will use my degree and go work in an office where I have a 401k. So, so that part of it, I'm still kind of waiting to see how it folds out when everything kicks off again, you know, because it, it could be a little weird. 
I'd like to take our last segment here to highlight just your view on goals. And I think a lot of people are in a position they have time to think. Well, uh, not exactly our last segment, because I do would like to have a segment uh, (laughs) where now that... uh, So Derek Witzke has a very unique uh, experience working with Charles Paulquin. And Mm. Paulquin has Mm -hmm. since passed away. And yeah, he's so uh, he's, he ended up dying of a heart attack. And I always, I always thought it'd be interesting just to have a little conversation on, uh, on him just to, because he was such a polarizing individual. And now that he's since passed away, it's not necessarily shit talking. It's more remembrance. So I like right. after that. But so, uh, your call, Derek, you want to talk well, no, Poliquin I mean, or do you want to talk goals first? Let's talk Poliquin first. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, any specific he, questions. Uh, yeah, you, you know, he he's always uh, really interesting. Um, uh, you know, I just had a very brief interaction with him personally, but like uh, through his writing and what he did with the Poliquin, um, you know, uh, the biosignature and that, like it's all right. Uh, he was very, very ahead of his time in a lot of ways and influenced a lot of people. Um, I just always, you know, uh, was curious and especially like things like, um, you know, just things that you've had time to reflect. I mean, as you know, you travel the world speaking on, on his behalf, right. working for him. So just, and just spent a lot of time around him, you know, like, uh, <clears throat> so I knew two different Charles, like when I knew like Chuck, the guy that was like nicknamed, <clears throat> excuse me, like the bulldog. I, I knew that original Charles. I knew him through Judd. I met him in 2000 in two as an athlete. So that's when he owned like, uh, you know, Paul Quinn performance down in Arizona. Uh, he, he didn't have a supplement line at the time. He wasn't doing any coaches education. You know, at that time, uh, a coach by the name of Andre Benoit, who was also one of his athletes back in the Olympic days in Canada was still developing the course curriculum, which would become PICP with the influence of guys from overseas that helped finish out and round out that, um, basically taking Charles's concepts and putting them into a written form. So back then Charles was like the, um, you know, uh, what was it? Something muscle 2000, you know, that magazine. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Had the, had the back page of that where it was like, ask the guru. Um, It was like, yeah, it was, uh, it was ask a guru or like Charles corner or something where he would like answer questions. Yeah. And he was, uh, he was writing on uh, T-Mag at the time. So it was a much more raw version of Charles. He was, he was an author and a coach. So that's the Charles I met. Very abrupt, very harsh, very matter of fact. But the thing that was very different about that, Charles, is he believed that there was a certain way to do things scientifically with strength and conditioning. A lot of the principles that he you know, coined as kind of his catchphrase was strength, but a lot of his principles made sense. It was very methodical. He, even back then, he didn't believe a lot in on-the-field conditioning for athletes. Um, my perspective on that, and I think it's accurate, is because he wasn't very good at it, right? He knew his skill set was in the weight room. He knew that if he took guys out and made them do sprint training or he had to demonstrate sprint mechanics, it was a waste of his time. It wasn't something he liked to do. It wasn't something he was particularly good at. So he was a weight room guy and fair enough, you know? Um, Back then, he hadn't bought into the the idea of turning himself and his concepts into a repeatable market, um, meaning which he he didn't have to teach the same class in Toronto at Good Life 
that he was going to teach 17 times again that year at 17 different gyms around the world. Now, the thing that I always tell people is when he transitioned into that, there was no way to keep the level of, uh, of complexity and the depth of information in his curriculum. So when it went from being a coach where he worked one-on-one with an athlete in Arizona to him moving out to Rhode Island and starting an education system, the problem with that is, is you do have to, in the beginning, cater to the lowest common denominator, kind of takes us back to our earlier conversation, meaning which, what is it that I can teach this group of 12 to 20 students or coaches and they can master it, replicate it, represent me well, and then hopefully they'll come back and take higher levels of education where we get into the nuts and bolts, right? And so what happened is he became very cookie cutter when he started his company. Now, that was the strength and conditioning side, which I lectured mostly on. And the struggle that we had is even if the information wasn't always the right solution for the athlete in the class in Denmark, we still had to stick to our guns because we were representing a company that had created a very fabricated, structured system of strength and conditioning where there was there was no area for color, right? It was very black and white. It was very, it's this or that chocolate or vanilla. So that was one thing that Charles always used to speak about. He believed that selling strength and conditioning to the masses, you couldn't give options. It had to be chocolate or vanilla, which I disagree with. But you to get to the, the complexities of a curriculum that gets that dynamic, you have to have a very high level of buy-in by your participants. And he knew that wasn't always the case. So on the strength and conditioning side, he, he, he really like narrowed up what he actually believed to make it a very palatable product. So I feel like Charles lost a lot of his, his magic and strength and conditioning by becoming a course, the way he designed it, it became too narrow and focused on the biosig side is a side that probably to me has a lot more controversy associated with it. So when he took his 12 site caliper and related it to body parts in association with some sort of hormonal dysfunction with biosignature, meaning which the most obvious one, and the reason I'll use it as the example is it's the only one that has scientific research at the time. Are you talking about belly fat? Like the belly uh, fat, cortisol site. Yeah, cortisol. Right. So it's the only one where there was documentable sure. information. Right. So you could be like, OK, we well, know that the, cortisol... the other one was uh, uh, estrogen in the upper thighs was the other upper one. thighs. Yeah. yeah. So I'll, I'll get to that one next because that one's kind of funny how that changed. Um, so the cortisol one, there was some some information that you could document, be like, well, cortisol levels increase adipose. Right. So we know that estrogen dysfunction in female likely is related to upper thigh fat. Now, when the original. Uh, documentation where they took the 12 sites from to get all the math was written. It was midpoint on the hamstring and midpoint on the quadricep between the hip and the knee. So that's where you're supposed to take the measurement to this day. And I'll tell you what, if someone's taken biosignature, that's not where they're measuring, especially on the hamstring. Charles changed it to the gluteal fold about two fingers below the gluteal fold is where you take the hamstring. 
Now, magically, what occurs when that happens is a massive increase in estrogen dominance due to the hamstring, because that's where a lot of skin is, right? So you're getting this huge measurement. You know, maybe you're getting 15 millimeters at the gluteal fold instead of five millimeters mid hamstring. So where does this all magically start to manifest? And this is where it gets interesting because I can see it from both sides is when you start a supplement company that sells supplements that treat the 12 sites, it is good to, <laughs> it's a good move as a business person to maybe have some of those sites pop up a touch high, right? <laughs> Cause that's where you're going to sell your dim and your uh, <laughs> gluconate and all this other stuff that you're going to use to try to bring down these sites. And, uh, and that's exactly what happened. So when we got into the software, and this is before Charles is passing, this is after he left his own company, we had broke open the software to see the math. The difference between having healthy hamstrings or healthy estrogen and high estrogen was the difference of one and a half millimeters in our software. So it was designed to everyone would have high, right? High hamstring measurements. So when you look at some of these companies, that's what you have to, that's what I find interesting. Now I say that because it alludes to the cult of personality that we have in our industry. So when Charles was, was alive and well within his own country and, and he was still Charles Poliquin and not the strength sensei, people would damn near fight you to the death for the things he was teaching in the biosignature seminars, the dogmatic fanatic mindsets of these coaches learning this stuff was unparalleled. It, it was like Tony Robbins or any of these other individuals that truly like inspired a motivational mindset. Now here's the thing within three years to Charles leaving Poliquin group and becoming strength sensei, immediately a divide started, right? Because some people wanted to keep the Poliquin Association because that name did help grow and their clients recognized it. And some people just wanted to follow the guru. And as that happened, we saw it. And these are people that I heard screaming to the heavens that Charles was God were now the same people that were like, fuck Charles Poliquin, he's so full of shit, all this garbage, right? And it's like, it's that same divisive mindset that happens anytime there is a dynamic leader and uh, a religion created around a concept. And it was funny because watching it from an outsider's perspective, because I took a lot of the backlash too, right? Like when Charles and I had a falling out before we kind of reconciled, but we never really got to, but we had a falling out before he left his company. Like we really butted heads. And then as he left his company, I stayed behind and, and it wasn't good. And so I took a lot of that initial backlash from his, like his core group of followers, which was thousands, right? They, they hated me cause I did, I was no longer Charles Poliquin. And, uh, it was funny cause those same people that hated me seven years ago, eight years ago now, because Charles left the company and I hung on for a year and I wasn't always, uh, you know, positively speaking on his behalf in terms of, of his systems, uh, you know, four and a half, five years later are now the same people I see attacking Charles, you know, right before he passed because they're like, ah, oh, the meat, meat nut breakfast is bullshit. Keto's bullshit. You need carbs. You got to have a balanced nutritional protocol, like just really attacking. It's like, 
are you attacking him? Or are you just realizing that you only had learned so much up to that point? And that as you learn more information and get more educated, that maybe some of your opinions naturally are going to differ with your instructor or teacher or mentors previous. But it doesn't mean you have to hate the person who gave you the initial step into the industry. Like if the if someone if you know zero and someone teaches you one plus one, well, by the time that you get to advanced physics, you're going to think that some of that information you learned in the beginning was pretty ridiculous and remedial. But if that person hadn't taught you basic arithmetic in the first place, you would have never got to advanced physics. So there's been this massive shifting polarization with Poliquin. And a lot of people don't realize it to this day. His daughter has taken over the Poliquin Strength Sensei, uh, uh, name and still has the gym now in Colorado Springs that's regrouping a bunch of great coaches to try to keep the concepts of the original formula going. Well, that's happening. There's a group of fucking cocksuckers that were previous students to Poliquin that he led into the strength sensei world who now are trying to steal away the company from his daughter that she received legally. And they have like even gone as far as like blocking her servers and disrupting her social media and doing all this stuff because they're trying to make a ton of money off of Charles's name now that he's dead. So like all this weird shit's happening. And when I look back on it, I really believe it's because he was too stringent in his fundamentals of what he believed strength and conditioning was. Like if he had just come out with the concepts he used coaching athletes and been a generalist in base level and then have like a specificity of thought when it came to key principles that he believed were his own and super important for athletes – you would have a much better image of what he created. But because he was so polarizing, A, it made him a shitload of money because we were a polarizing culture socially, but B, it either made him a prophet or a pariah. And because of that, you have one or two beliefs with the guy. And the people are going to love you or hate you. Well, love you or hate you. you when, know? And, when I went to the level one, the upper body deal, you know, they, uh, oh, yeah, I, yeah. yeah. so when I went to it, uh, it was awful. And I awesome. got it. Yeah, I got into it with them. And I was like, dude, you guys are, you know, basically coaching everything time under tension. What about compensatory? You know, mm -hmm. and I, I like you would have thought that I was the fucking antichrist coming into this. Right. And then the guy's like, well, what background do you have? Oh, I'm 10 year NFL player. And I fucking, you know, all of a sudden I'm like qualifying who I am and that I own a gym and I train athletes. And this is what I like all of a sudden, like, yep. uh, like I didn't even fucking go back for, I think, the second day. Um, nah. And just because it was it, like it was uh, it was so rigid and so like bucketed and like, you know, there was no deviation. There was, you know, it was only like I am, I am is, is kind of what yep. I joked with it. And I think when you yep. do that and, um, you know, Greg Glassman, very similar from CrossFit, yes. you know, there's only one way to reach enlightenment and it's my way and anything else is fucking, you know, not going to lead you there. And I think these polarizing yep. individuals, like what the problem is, is that, yeah, like you said, they make a ton of money, people follow them. But then the minute that people go outside and they realize that maybe this isn't the only way, all of a right. sudden now it's like the fucking hatred turned. Well, um, shit, I'm totally drawn a blank, which is terrible on my part. There's that other strength coach that he and Charles were parallels of each other. Uh, Paul Czech. Oh, Paul yeah. Czech, right? Oh, yeah, 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 okay. yeah. The Czech Institute. 
Czech Institute. So Paul had a very similar trajectory as Charles, right? Um, in terms of their popularity coming up at roughly the same time. And they were completely opposite in what they were teaching. Um, and they hated each other, of course, right? Because how can you be a polarizing money-making machine if you agree with your competition? Well, right? the problem is, is that uh, there's no room for two gurus. No uh, room for two gurus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me tell you a funny story that no, nobody's ever heard. And I heard it because it's a fucking awesome coincidence. And I've forced up my way through everything. So I'm sitting in an office in Rhode Island. There's a guy who will remain nameless because I don't want to throw him under the bus, but he has been an industry ghostwriter for uh, health and fitness for 25 years. The guy's phenomenal. 90% of everything you've ever read from Charles Poliquin was written by this individual. His mastery is to write the way that somebody else has written. So he'll read what you've written, like one of your original pieces, and you'd be like, and he, he knows a lot about strength and conditioning, but he's an English major guy. And he's very unassuming. He wouldn't know it about strength side of it. And so when you see him and you have a conversation with him, he'll be like, give me 1500 words. You give him 1500 words, he'll read it. And then he will be like, okay, so give me a topic that you want to write this week. And that's how Paul Kuhn was able to produce so much. Everyone thought he was writing it. No, he didn't write any of it. He had a professional write it. So Charles would go in and be like, all right, I need an article, 1,500 words. We're going to talk about the meat and nut breakfast and its relationship to CNS function and dopamine production related to the back squat. Like it'd be super technical like that. And this guy got it. He would sit down and just da-da-da-da-da-da, and he would have Charles's speech style, 1,500 words, knock it out, okay? So I got along really well with this guy, even though he was a backroom, dark closet guy. He just was really an obscure thinker type. And one night we were talking, and I'm like, I'm like, what do you think all this bullshit in our industry, right? Because I come from so many different backgrounds. I'm like, I've never trained with Paul Check. Is he that bad? You know, because Charles hated him, right? Like just, brr. so this dude's like, he's like, not, nah. well, yeah, this dude's like, uh, he's like, nah, man, he's, he's a super nice dude. He's, uh, he goes, I worked for him for a long time. And I'm like, uh, really? And he's like, oh yeah. He goes, I ghost write for him while I ghost write for Charles. And I'm like, okay, so you wrote simultaneously for the two competitors in the industry. He's like, not only do I write for them both, they don't even realize sometimes what I write. He goes, I tested Paul Check one time because Paul was like really bragging about this article, which this guy wrote 100% of. And this guy was like, yeah, that joke you wrote was really funny, which Paul didn't write because this guy wrote the joke. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that was a good joke. You like that one? And this guy's like, yeah, it was amazing. Just totally blows it off. Just as a point of fact that... Paul didn't even realize what was in the article with his name on it, right? And that article and Charles's articles were coming out at the same time in fitness magazines, right? And that's when I kind of had the aha moment as a, as a coach in the private sector. I'm like, ah, oh, I get it. It's all business and bullshit for you guys. I get it. Okay. So the fish oil, 15 grams a day, isn't actually making anyone leaner. It's just that we did one million dollars this month in fish oil sales got it this is triple level pyramid marketing 101 you educate a bunch of people you get them to buy in and they start selling your product 
And that's what these guys do. And, and people will throw shade at me for saying that, but that's just factual stuff that was happening. It's not like I'm sitting here. Well, telling he a had all of his biosignature supplements like, yeah. Oh, like you go through the biosignature and I've had people do it. And then they give you a list of like, Oh, here's all the stuff you buy. And it's not mm -hmm. stuff that you can just go get. You have to take this specific one because this version is the one that I've gone in and done. Yes. It's, it's it, like, we see this all the time. I, um, um, like I got, uh, one of the docs I know was like, Hey, you know, we got this, uh, there's like some like, um, urine testing that we're doing. And so like he, he, I, I ended up getting the, this urine test through this company and they like sent me these results, but then it's the company that's like, Oh, the, this is what you have like within it. This is the protocols that we sell. And I'm like, Whoa, Whoa, normally testing companies are agnostic. Like they do the testing right. and then they send the results to like a doctor who then goes, okay, these are what I'm looking at. And this is the prescription. So like, that's the way normal stuff works. But like the, the, the biosignature you go through, they do the caliper, the whole deal, you know, this is here, they put it in the software, then it spits out. And it's like, now you have to take these supplements. It's fucking genius. Nefarious, it's but genius. genius. Yeah. You know, the average biosig class costs around 1200 bucks a person for five days. Our average attendance was a hundred students. We did 15 to 20 courses a year. Right. So you're looking at anywhere from 1.5 to two plus million dollars a year in attendance revenue. Right. On top of that, the average biosig student represented $10,000 in supplement sales. That number gets really big, really fast. You know, and so when our company before it fell apart, and I know it still exists, but it's not what it was. I know there's like, I don't have, I haven't in seven years, I've had no interaction with Polycon Group for a lot of reasons. Mostly they're scumbags. But when I look at the company and what it became, now it's just an online supplement deal. But right before I left, before they moved into the new building, I believe that we had a revenue of about 15 to 20 million annually. And our operating costs of that were something like 40%. Like the company was just printing cash. It was printing cash. They should have never tried to expand the way they did. Removing the fact that Charles and his ex-wife were 50-50 owners of the company and they ended up having a huge marital, marital breakup that caused the company to collapse that way. Like you remove that, that, social aspect of it and just look at it as a company. They decided to move from a, a functional small facility that printed cash and they moved into a facility that had a, like a 20,000 square foot weight room, right? So their goal was to turn it into whatever they thought they were going to turn it into. And then he, he literally left his company before we ever opened the doors to that new facility. So it was doomed from the start. Um, but if they had a kept the model tight and kept the, the niche tight, you know, like we're talking 5,000 square foot gym, a couple classrooms and about 15 employees pumping out 20 million a year. If they had a kept that model and not had this like false sense of grandeur, uh, minus the marital shit. But if they, if that could have all stayed locked in, that company would still be crushing it today. Like just fucking printing money because the concept was so clean. It wasn't until it got this, like the illusions of grandeur that inevitably bloated it to the point where it was un, unsustainable. And now I think the Poliquin group facility in Rhode Island, I think 
the irony of it, I think it is now a physical therapy center with really like, like not anything to do with true strength and conditioning at all. It's a bunch of like uh, therapy beds and foam P- rollers. And yeah, PTs doing fucking TheraBand work. Man. Yep. Uh, yeah, like he, what it, like I, I used to read his stuff and I used to come across it and I was always very uh, interested. But like I have this um, like the conscientious objector where it's like I'm going to go. Mm-hmm. All right. Like, like I'm not saying I'm not going, but I'm going to ask questions. Like I want to know why. Like, like you have to like and, and what was amazing I thought a little for a lot of his stuff, there had to be a lot of blind faith. Uh, whereas like, okay, of course, like convince me, like, how is this better? Like, like, what is like, what's the mechanism? How is this going to do this? Why have people, are, uh, you know, they made an interesting point that like, um, you know, the only way to like uh, attain greatness is through this. And, I'm, you know, it just was like, yeah, felt super hokey. And, um, you know, but like the people that were there, man, fucking were eating it up. And like, I mean, the, the only time I've ever seen thing like that was with CrossFit where people were like, yeah. uh, like this is the way, and I always joke, I am, I am, you know, when, um, you know, God talks to Moses on the mountain and hands him the tablets, like, this is the way, this is the only way it's my way. And if you do this, you'll reach enlightenment and any deviation is fucking considered a sin. And, uh, he yeah. did a really good job of creating that cult of personality. He did. It's lock, stock and barrel. Right. And, and people forget, like, even though, you know, Charles was very, abrupt and he said things that were super inappropriate charles was very similar to what we were seeing with trump in his way he speaks with the press like people are like oh why does he speak that way it's very like ugh, abrupt and rough and not very polished well because you don't realize it but that's the way the majority of your interactions are during the day from the gas station to the grocery store most people aren't polished speakers. And so Charles, it actually worked to his benefit. He would say these ridiculous things like, and jokes that were super inappropriate. He would say them to a class of a hundred people. And, you know, it was no mis- it was, it's no uh, secret now that that's why he had, honestly, he had a lot of women in a lot of classes that he had uh, relationships with. And it all kind of comes out after the fact, but It's like because people were drawn to the fact that it seemed like by being rough and gruff and very non-politically correct that, oh, this, you know what, this guy must be telling the truth, you know? Yeah. The, uh, and, and I think there is, there's a, there's a market to honesty has a tendency to sound hard to hear and honesty has a tendency to sound at times vulgar compared to what we're being spoon fed, uh, in society. But the truth is, is there's just people that have mastered the ability to spoon feed you with a rusty spoon. And when they do it, it's like, it's like, you know what, I'll take this. Cause this, this, this has got some edge to it. This is kind of hard. This is harsh. The guy, you know, uses a lot of profanity and and even though when I get excited, I have a tendency to, and I try not to, but this is different type of profanity. This is, this is some vulgar business. And, but it, it kind of jars people out of their, their marshmallow existence. And they're like, oh yeah, man, this guy's got 20 inch arms and he just dropped a bunch of F-bombs and yelled at a kid for being weak. I'm buying his supplement, right? And it, it's, <laughs> it created this, this concept, right? Like, uh, you know, he used to tell a joke and I used to sit in the back of the room and run a lot of the uh, technical stuff for these, for BioSig. You know, I 
did almost all of them at one point as his main assistant. And I would be sitting there and I could hear the tone of his voice change. And I would look up like on cue, like I was in a production of like, <laughs> of like, uh, whatever on Broadway goes the show. Fiddler, like I'm sitting here and I got like 17 Broadway plays and I was like almost going to like mix a bunch. I knew I'd sound like a giant Neanderthal. So, uh, but I would look up and I would just be like, blah, 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 like on cue because it was, we'd gotten to that point. He'd be like, he'd be like, you know, cause I was quite a bit fatter back then. <laughs> he'd be like, he'd be like, yeah, Derek had a dream last night and I knew it was coming. Right. I'd, and I'd look up. Oh, okay. We're at like, hour four on day three, it's the, it's the joke, right? So I'd be like, ah, Derek had a dream last night. He ate the world's largest marshmallow, right? And I thought it was fucking hilarious for some reason. It's still this day. And I'd look up and I'd be like, here it comes. He woke up and his pillow was missing, right? So like, that was his fucking whole punchline. And then from there, segue into why you should take fish oil to control COX-2 inhibitor inflammation related to muscle damage and how it affects the ability to metabolize fat and, and, and motor blah, blah, blahs. And it was clockwork. It was no different than watching Zach Brown's band get up on stage and at this minute, at this time, hit this note so fucking perfect that the crowd erupts it was the same and it was masterful but it was bullshit you know and we knew it it's <laughs> awesome yeah. no i i dude i i always uh uh, I always appreciate hearing the stories because I, I have a like not a slight fantasy or uh, like um, a fantasy, but uh, like not fixation, but I'm always like a, an interest in polarizing individuals and especially people that can Same. get up and like get up and speak and convey information and, and not not manipulate, but manipulation in some ways, but like really just motivate people in such a way to be better versions. And I think like right. a lot of it is dis a lot of times you run into people that are disingenuous and sometimes, you know, you run into charlatans and, you know, crooks and people that are trying to separate you from your money. And then you run into yep. people that are like legitimately, uh, trying to, you know, inspire and make people better. I mean, like Tony Robbins is, uh, and what's, what's even more funny is like, I, like I met Tony Robbins years ago. Uh, we watched a bunch of his like little documentary things. I think oh, they yeah. were on Netflix. And like I, I've known people that have gone to it. Um, and then what's hilarious is like I always get like a really like prickly feeling because uh, mm -hmm. like I don't know why, but it just feels like my bullshit meter goes up. But yeah, and then it's funny because people are like, "Oh, you remind me of Tony Robbins," and I'm and I'm always <laughs> like, "I was like, what?" <laughs> like I had a guy the other day at the at the, the gas station was like, Has "Anybody ever told you you uh, kind of remind uh, like Tony Robbins?" And I'm like, "Nobody." Every ever told day me. at work. Well, uh, yeah. well, why is it the deep voice? Is it the fact that banana, banana hands? <laughs> uh, but like I like Tony Robbins. Uh, you know, Greg Glassman fits into that one. Um, you know, Paul Quinn fits into that. Uh, you know, and like, you know, you think about like reading about great leaders from like, you know, Churchill or, you know, Hitler, like whatever you want to talk about. But these people that were so, like the one thing that's unique about all of them is they always pick a side and that their side is the only way. And it's so polarizing. And yes. like they do this interesting thing where they bring people in and there's like a harshness and they like uh, break people down and they create like this negative kind of emotion and then they bring them in and they share something, they teach something and they create yep. this like really interesting thing where now all of a sudden like I have, 
I've taught you something better about yourself. I've shared something. So I've created this bridge. You ascend across to their bridge and now you're standing behind them and you're their fucking, uh, like yep. most, you know, venomous, like venomous, supporter. uh, supporter where you will stand up there and, you know, wholesale your entire life to somehow, uh, support this individual and to like, you know, hoist them on the shoulders. And like, man, that yep. like, I mean, the, the people at the Tony Robbins thing, they paid like, what is it? Five or 10 grand to go to that, to, 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 to Dude, have five these grand. Yeah. To, Extra two grand to have your photo taken with them. Yeah. What? That's to, what we advertised in Denver last year. And yeah, so we had... Vegetarian meal. Well, we had Peter um, Sal, uh, the guy that, remember the dude, Peter, the English dude that we did the podcast with? He yeah. was one his, of... His his number two. Yeah, so he was he was um, Sage. Tony Robbins. Peter, yeah, Peter Sage. Sage. He, was, he was Tony yeah. Robbins' number two guy. So like when you go to the Tony Robbins events, he has all these people that he's trained that are kind of his agents that go out, they meet people. Yeah, like bring the back. breakout groups. Yeah, so he, he yeah. was really interesting. And he had a lot of that uh, like kind of in him and just a lot of interesting observations and understanding human, you know, uh, mindset and technology in terms of like how to assess who needs their moment and then giving them their moment. And yeah. like, it's just so fascinating to me to see, uh, this level of emotional intelligence, because I always thought like uh, people with a high a level of emotional quote, like intelligence, high quotient for it. It's just something that like they're born with almost like an extra sixth sense. Like it's, right. but, but what I've come to the conclusion, it's something that can be cultivated. Uh, and it, yes. And, and yeah, then like absolutely. you knew it from like going around with Paul Quinn. Now we learned it. I learned it. Um, not in the NFL, but teaching hundreds of seminars and Chris and these guys, yep. like the ability to stand up in front of a group of individuals and entertain them and get them to buy in on this and take them through this journey of breaking them down, teaching something, sharing something, bringing here, you know, when to use a story, when not to use a story, how to arrange this thing in such a way that you get buy in. And then, but the problem is, and this is some Rob Wolf and I have always talked about, um, like there's something inherent within me. And I know Rob's the same way where it's like, ah, I can't be a fucking charlatan and a bullshitter. I can't stand right. up there and tell somebody something that I know is a lie because it somehow benefits me. And like, there's right. always that moral compass. And like, as Rob and I have talked for years, the difference between like the Tony Robbins or the Greg Glassman's and the Paul Quinn's and these kind of like, uh, you know, what you'd call them almost like these fitness demagogues, you know, the, uh, the, the yeah. fitness gurus is that they don't have the moral compass that allows them to be like, um, even though I know this is bullshit, I'm going to sell it because it's in my best interest. And I, right. I think that like, you know, Paul Quinn gets up there and he might've believed it, but he also knew that if he was to tailor this in such a way, even, and he was to sell it, even though he might not have believed it, it would benefit himself. And I think that's, that's, a, that's the difference for these guys. And I think like at the end of the day, um, you know, I always joke with the uh, Goodwill hunting where it's like, well, you'd be serving my kids fries. I was like, ah, well, at least I won't be an original. Whereas like <laughs> that piece of like, fuck, man, like I would hate for somebody to be like, ah, you know, uh, this whole thing was fabricated to separate, separate you. And, the, you know, like I'd like for us to or at least the work that we do here at Power Athlete to for people to look and be like, that shit was really switched on. Like I got an email the other day, uh, other day from a guy who was just following our Johnny Watt stuff. And somebody recommended that he read it uh, or that he read uh, Zadoskorsky. So he picked up Science and Practice and okay. read it. And That's was not an easy read. fucking blown away that if you go through science and practice, uh, he's like all of the elements of Johnny Wad 
completely fit within the elements of science and practice. There's rep method, there's max effort, there's speed, you know, and he went through this whole thing and the guy was like, I had no fucking concept that this program that was written with tongue and cheek humor that, that, that you guys put out adhered to all of these really high end strength and conditioning fucking principles. And the dude was like, uh, it fucking blew my mind. I couldn't fucking believe it. You know, I thought I was well, going to read this book and then be able to kick holes in you. And all it did yeah, is you know, reconfirm what you're doing. Yeah. And I, it, I, t- I told the guy, I'm like, what do you think? I'm a fucking hack. I just picked this shit up. I've been doing this shit my whole life. Not only have you guys been doing it forever, but the fact that you're willing to reference the sources of your original mentorship information. And that is a huge separating factor. And it's something I try to adhere to as much as I can is you have to own what you believe. And so there has to be an ownership. Like you talk about the systems that you use a power athlete to educate. Some of that stuff you have to do. Some of that Tony Robbins protocoling that you do to educate, it's what educates. It's, it's how you get your message to stick. But the, and, and you're trying to get a message to stick that you personally believe in. But the difference between what you guys do and what a lot of these that have come before you and some that are existing in your realm currently, they will not acknowledge where their intellect comes from. They will not acknowledge who educated them. Now to Charles's credit, the one thing he was good at, but not enough in my opinion, is he would acknowledge a handful of mentors, uh, you know, guys like Pierre Waugh from Canada. The problem is, is he had many more that he would not acknowledge because he had a falling out with. And it's like, I always try to, to remind people, and I, I wrote this years ago, and I remember Mark Twight from Jim Jones actually was one of the few comments, and he doesn't follow me or anything, but must have saw it years back and, and commented. And I don't know Mark. I only know him through a friend. Um, but I wrote, I have learned a lot of really valuable pieces of information from a lot of assholes, right? And it's like, there's a key to that that I try to get across is it's like, not every person that has made me a better coach is somebody that I full-heartedly believe in as a person or even full-heartedly believe in what they're teaching. But they had this piece of information that at the time was invaluable, right? And and it doesn't mean that, so for example, uh, you know, okay, so I don't know Louis Simmons um, and I would never, in, I would never personally uh, hire Louis Simmons to coach a hundred meter sprinter that was 14 years old. I, I just wouldn't do that. I, I just don't believe that it would be a good fit. Um, but man, even as a track and field athlete, have I used a shitload of West Side methodology, right? Because it still fits, even though I wouldn't hire a power lifter purist to be a track and field coach, I would still have that person come in and I would take all the pieces from them that I could utilize with that track athlete while I blend it all together. But a lot of people won't acknowledge that. Like no one's going to, there's a lot of people that won't say they learned, you know, they learned accommodated resistance. They won't admit it that someone had to teach them that. There's people I will meet that it's almost as if they believe they figured it out on their own. Even in 2020, they'll be like, hey, I started doing this thing with bands. And it's like, 
really, motherfucker? Dude, uh, really? but I've, I've always said, man, like, I've, I've been the first person to always point and say, hey, this is where I learned this. And my comment is mm-hmm. I just stand on the shoulders of giants. And I think it is. because, I mean, dude, like I uh, like it's it feels really um, I don't know what the word is, but just dirty. To like try it, to it like, does feel dirty. Yeah, like like to steal somebody's life work or this. I mean, like we referenced Charlie Francis, who I met through Mauro de Pasquale, and I remember like uh, we were on with Derek Hansen and discussing some uh, Charlie Francis stuff. Right, and like yeah. Charlie's stuff was super impactful for me. I mean, I remember like all the GPP med, uh, med ball stuff we do, and the idea either hey, you run as fast as you can. If you can't run as fast as you can, then don't run. Like you, right. the only way you get faster is by running faster. And I've referenced Charlie, and he was. Uh, uh, gruff and abrupt and cursed and smoked and you know uh, yep. might have been you know uh, Tourette's or autistic in some way um, right and, sounds familiar yeah it sounds a lot like that and and like but then I'll hear people um, you know he's since passed away but like I'll hear people reference things as if it's their own and I'm like this fucking guy I'm like what did you just nope. go back and fucking steal something from Derek Hansen or Charlie Francis and yep, it, it exactly. just feels dirty and disingenuous and I'm the most to be like, yeah, I mean, uh, like though that interaction was very, very impactful at the time. I don't think I would have come out of my, uh, patellar tendon rupture if I hadn't had that interaction. No, I agree a hundred percent. And, and I see that so often now, especially because of the social media age that it's, it's just this, it's a continuous regurgitation of other people's information and they're changing titles, changing sources and doing all these things, but they're not giving credit where credit's due. Um, and I, I don't our industry, but it does seem like our industry is a little more prone to that behavior. Um, you know, it's, it's like to, to your credit, I stand on the shoulders of giants. It's like the, it's like, I always say to people, it's like on my best day, I am a medium information on my worst day. I'm a guy that likes to tell stories. Right. And that's how I've always looked at it. I have, I have the ability to take what other people have said and I can condense it. Well, I can speak to a degree, which allows people to understand it. And that's what I'm really good at. I'm really good at taking other people's concepts and huge amounts of information at times and being like, okay, how do I whittle down what they said and they already put the heart and soul into and how can I get in front of a group of people and, and speak that message in a way in which the majority can go home and understand it. Okay. That's what I'm good at. I'm not the guy that has invented anything in human performance. I'm the guy that has gotten really good at taking human performance science and information and doing it in a way in which I can communicate it. I've done almost zero lab work as a coach and I fully own that. I'm a lot like Judd Logan in that sense. I'm not a, I'm not a science guy when it comes to human performance. Do I understand a lot of it now at 43? Yeah, of course. But what I'm really good at is taking some relatively complex pieces of other people's information and being able to explain it to somebody that has no desire to be a human performance expert. And when I figured out I could do that quite well, then coaching success seemed to follow suit very shortly after. Um, But yeah, the only original aspect of what I do is how I believe that I communicate a lot of really brilliant people's information. You know, your guys is included. Like, so it's to say that I'm not still scavenging the universe of 
of ways to do a better is also incorrect. You know, a, a coach comes out tomorrow and I could see, holy crap, I've never thought to do it that way. This guy's brilliant. Okay, how do I turn this into my speak and my coaching style so that I can use it to be successful with somebody else? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Text goals. Uh, <laughs> I, this is a beautiful transition because in Derek's teaching of people how to, or his approach to goals, he uses strength and conditioning terms such as the cycles, macro, mes, meso, and micro. So I thought it was an awesome, and it still sticks with me from Summer Strong 10. John, you spoke, to, I can't even remember what year it was. What, Summer Strong 10? Yeah, I spoke 17, 17, I think. That was, I'm not sure. Um, Gosh, yeah, it's crazy, right? Because this was supposed to be 13, correct? Yeah, it was yeah, supposed to be 13. Ten, I'm referencing well, 10. Uh, I'm really glad that I uh, didn't allow my shoulder injury or just being a lazy fuck to avoid or for me to not go to Winter Strong. Because mm. uh, I was like, I remember my wife being like, well, if, you know, because uh, I was like, I that was our go. last chance. Yeah, I, that was I our was last like, get together. Yeah, I was like, man, I, I got to go. And she was like, you know, but like you had your shoulder and the kids and the whole deal. And I was like, you know, Bert called and invited me and uh, like, hey, man, like there's not that many people. And she's like, well, are you going to go to Summer Strong? I'm like, well, yeah, of course. Like, like, what do you mean we wouldn't go to Summer Strong? Like, that's like a. Right. That's like the filling of my bucket. Like I get to like hang out right. and, and have not drinks teach and, and not, not teach. Stress. Yeah. And just, yeah. just like, and I get to listen to amazing presentations and I'm like, that's, right. that's kind of the refilling of my bucket. Um, right. The fact that like, I didn't realize that winter strong, like there wouldn't be a summer strong. And I, th and then like, you yeah. know, now like we're not doing the power athlete symposium. Like I, I was almost going to like text Bert the other day and text you and be like, what are we going to do instead? Like, is there, right. if, like, like there has to be like, I don't know what it is, but I like, I, I imagine like, we'll just, I'll, we'll get a text and everybody will just show up. You know? That's exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 It'll be like a code and everyone arrives at the same yeah. time. Right. Like all of a sudden it'll be like news team assemble and people looking like, yeah. I've been here the whole time, dude. I got a cake in the back of the truck. Let's get some music. <laughs> but like that, I mean, cause, uh, I'll, yeah. I'll tell you, man, like, um, it's, uh, I like, I love Summer Strong. Uh, not, I mean, like, I, I love hearing people speak and you getting up and speaking and just like the different people. But it's actually like the one on one interactions that we have in yeah. between having drinks, sitting at food, and like, like seeing the whole thing and the really, really nice feeling of not having to fucking put it on to show up to somebody else's party and just right. be a plus one. Well, we were talking about appreciation earlier and. Man, the Power Athletes Symposium, we go to Summer Strong and just show the love because we have an idea at a, a smaller scale of what it takes to do that. And the, the show that they put on is bigger. It's awesome. And live music. And it's epic. Fuck. I mean, so just, we just appreciate, the fact that they cook for that many people. Yeah. And we get to drink right, beer. Right. And we get to listen. And I got to sit and listen to Derek fucking get up and crush it. And then I, I got to sit up there and listen to Tate Fletcher, who was totally... I was thinking Tate Fletcher as well. Dude, uh, right? Tate's opening talk, he didn't know what he was talking about and was floundering. And it took him about seven to ten minutes to figure out. And once he did it, it was like fucking lightning in a bottle. And then... Uh, yep. Megan and I talked about that a lot. Tate's... Tate's presentation was one of the most unexpectedly enjoyable, kind of like, okay, comparable to me for my personal 
Rudy, a power athlete, yeah. <laughs> where you weren't a hundred percent sure how the how the train uh, was leaving the station, shame, but you wrote I just, it. I just remember you leaning over to me and looking, being like, "Hey, if there's a if there's a spaceship or a, a outside, I think we're all going to go get on and like, <laughs> shame, yeah. shameless plug to our listeners, YouTube." Dude, Rudy Reyes, power when, athlete. When he started playing the Ziggy Stardust, and you were like, "Is there a spaceship outside?" Because I'm about to go get on. You want to go? Like, fuck, dude. We all would have got on that spaceship if it was outside. Like, he, yeah, uh, fuck, like, yeah. And then like the look on Adam Nelson's face, you know, fucking gold medalist, the you know, Olympic champion, all the whole yeah. deal. And he's like, "Holy shit, I gotta follow this fucking guy." <laughs> how do you, how, yeah, it's yeah, it's like how do you follow the stones, right? So it's uh. But it is, you know, and and kind of circling back to the question, like with the goal setting, I kind of get the feeling you're wondering, like, in this current state of affairs, like, how am I, how do I look at it, right? Um, And you know, what's funny, I've thought about this a little bit. So, you know, when I talk about like the three phases of goal setting, you know, and I talk about micro through to the macro and big term, long-term goals, and then the stuff you do day to day. What I, oh, I'm finding to get through this and sometimes, you know, and very rarely do I take a true selfie for Instagram, right? Where I stand there and you actually see the camera. I kind of try to resist it, but I've done it lately because I've kind of made some jokes out of it um, because that's the world we're in right now is a lot of people, in my opinion, if you're super focused on where you're going to be 11 months from now, um, you're going to have a real hard time getting some stuff done. Uh, because for a lot of people, psychologically, it's really hard to goal set when the fringe of the goal is not very solidified. You know, so for example, we were supposed to be at Summer Strong this past weekend. Didn't happen. I had a presentation that I never finished because it didn't happen. Right. So people will be like, well, why didn't you just finish the presentation? Because I had no goal end date. I had no, I had no, uh, no thing that I needed to lock it in for. So everybody's guilty of that a little bit when there's no hard boundary. You start to have a tendency to get a little soft in those middle and longer term uh, end goals. So I had to reel it back in and I'm like, okay, so if the only thing I can really control is what's happening from uh, sunup to sundown, I know that, okay, I I might be able to have some freedoms. Like Megan's got this big uh, cycling challenge on Sunday she's doing. She's going to ride 29,000 vertical feet in a day. Um, so we know that stuff like that is very short term, very, we can get to it. We see it. We know those things are happening. Um, my training, I know that I can control that two hours is lackluster. Is it get some days training in my bedroom? I can control those variables. I'm riding way too much assault bike. I can tell you that. Um, but I can control that. And I, and what I started doing is I started writing a little bit each day, which for me is actually a struggle. Everyone thinks I write a lot, but I don't. I, I have a tendency to write in bursts in the moment and then not write. So now I'm, I'm, you know, with Megan's help, I'm starting to work on trying to write more and be like constructive, developing concepts. It's all micro stuff because I have no idea when the next thing is going to happen. So for me, what I tell people is you have to really make sure that you have a daily routine that is, is really locked in. Don't get into this mindset. Well, I know shit, we're not allowed to do anything for the next 14 days. You know, the stay in home order is not going to be lifted now until June 1st. Well, I got time. 
if you focus that way, your micro starts to get really dissolved. But if you get up every day, even if it's not a great schedule, because we're in such a weird time, but every day, you know, that you're going to roughly get up at this time, get into the habit of fucking going to bed at the same time, right? Like this idea that just because you don't have a job in the morning that you can stay up to 4am every night, it's so detrimental to the long term of what's going to happen to you, you're going to get way out of sync. So try to have a start and a finish to your day that is consistent, even if the day gets a little muted, and a little muddied, the micro level, the day at a time stuff gets a little muddy because you're just like, oh, what am I going to do today? You got to have at least, in my opinion, one to three tasks that you enjoy to do that you do every single day. So for me, mine are kind of strange. Um, they don't really fit together like most people. I work out every day in my bedroom. Uh, Megan is a cyclist and an endurance athlete as well. So depending on the day of the week, I will also do a ride outside with her. I'm an average cyclist at best. I have a mountain bike. Uh, so, and she does downhill stuff too. So that's the world we melded in. I'll ride with her on some days. And then the other thing that I do in terms of that, I'll do some writing, but I'll also do some tactical stuff. So I like to shoot handguns and do that stuff. And where we live in California, I have a lot of freedoms that way. But those are my micro things I do every day. Oddly enough, those things are getting really good compared to where they were in March. The problem is, is if you ask me pre presentations, things down the road, speaking engagements, man, I'll be honest, I haven't put any energy into any of those things because I have no idea. So I do feel like I'm developing a pretty significant reserve of information that I need to start putting into another endeavor. But for the most part, I'm focusing on things that I can have an achievement every single day. So every single day when I go to bed at night, I'm hopefully physically a little bit tired or very, very tired. So I feel like my day produced something. Uh, I've been tracking a lot of my training metrics. So I have something I can look at that I'm actually improving. And I'm focusing on things that I can physically control when so many of the things around me in society are being determined by something I can't even see. Right. So I need to have tangible, positive tasks that I can actually manipulate um, for better or worse. And so for me, a lot of my energy. I would say 90% of my goal setting is what is happening today? What is happening today? Um, some of it is peripheral. It'll, you know, shoot out down the road and develop into something. Um, but not, not, not really any big picture stuff. And, um, and not that there would be a ton of it, but there, there is a, definitely an increased focus on having positive outcomes every day in going to bed, having made sure I did one of my goals every day so that the next day when I wake up, I know I haven't lost a day because I was a sack of shit. And two long-term. So even if they want to think long-term and long-term is so yeah. unclear, you said the importance of not being so specific long-term and two notes I had were directional, not destinational. And then yep. generaliz generalization. Right. So when, when you're talking about the macro level or what I think of as macro goal setting and what I'd spoke about is the idea that in the, in that phase of your goal setting, so much of it is conceptual, right? It's sometimes theory-based, conceptual-based. You haven't put in any of the groundwork so that you can actually have a tangible, tangible, projectable 
uh, progression of things. So this would be a good time. Like if somebody has been thinking about writing an ebook or writing a book, but they've never, they haven't done anything to prepare them for what it's probably going to undertake, even if it's fiction or nonfiction, you know, this conceptual phase or direction, not destination, this would be a really good time to download a shitload of books on how to be an author, right? If you want to start a website on God forbid, another podcast, you know, as I, as, as I say that on a podcast, uh, you know, we, uh, uh, we got into this whole discussion earlier in the week about like how to improve upon and level up the podcast right. and this, and it's, um, it, it's really interesting, like, uh, li- like lis- listening to different podcasts and I know you're a podcast listener. Uh, yep. I, I tend to listen to just the podcast that, um, I view to be like really intellectually, like something I want to learn. Like I'm not looking right. necessarily listening to things to be inspired or whatnot. Like I want to listen yep. to the Nobel prize guy, break down all the fucking numbers on COVID. I want to listen to, uh, Elon Musk on, uh, Joe Rogan talking about AI and that type of stuff. Like I go there for yep. something. Whereas, um, yes. It, 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 it's really always, interesting uh, how, how people uh, digest stuff. Yeah. It's uh, and this is a perfect time. Like if, okay, let's use an example that'll fit into this using podcasts. If you got a guy that's an up and comer in the strength and conditioning world and works at <clears throat> anytime fitness in Australia or good life or, or wherever, hopefully they still exist when the doors open up. Um, and, and they're, they're super enthusiastic, but they have, an average to above average level of knowledge, but they have an exceptional level of enthusiasm. And these people love to create podcasts and it's not a bad thing. It's just reality. So these podcasts will pop up and the level of conversation is a really remedial. The way in which they communicate is a little bit off-putting because they have a tendency to talk at each other, right? Because they're jousting, right? Because they're both so enthusiastic. There's no communication. It's it's just monologue, monologue, monologue from two or three different people. So you have this is what they think is their, and this is their dream. Like this is what they want to do. They, you know, they're in love with the idea of becoming something in this industry, which is a great place to start. The problem is, is they don't have any of the groundwork in place because they got to the podcast level the same time they picked up a dumbbell, right? So that's what we're dealing with in our industry right now. So using that individual, and I'm sure there's thousands of them in every industry, but that individual in our world as the example, this is the time when you think of direction, not destination and conceptual stuff, this is when they should have taken upon themselves to watch every single one of Tim Ferriss's how to do a podcast YouTubes, right? Everything from learning how to use GarageBand if they're doing it themselves, learning on what the best basic equipment, like I'm on your guys' podcast, but I'm not using a computer microphone for a reason, right? You, you take this time to just download as much technical information as possible that you can in the field in which you want to step into. You read every uh, book and review that you can on how to podcast correctly. You make sure that you're backing it up with a huge amount of fundamental knowledge on strength and conditioning so that you can talk intellectually on the concepts that you want to sell. And you make sure that you have all the nuts and bolts in place for everything that you're trying to do in this industry. This is the time to do it because you have nothing but time to become an expert in this, in this industry, in this field, theoretically, 
right? Because the application aspect is on hold. The micro aspect of coaching people day to day is on hold. So yeah, become an expert in concepts, become an expert in the things that you need to, to sort of solidify the theory and intellectual side of what you're doing. Then when those doors open, now all of a sudden you actually might be ahead of your peers instead of behind them, if that makes sense. Like that's what I think of in, in times like this, this is conceptual programming. How do I become a bigger entity in the world that I'm existing in? Damn. Dude, uh, I could talk for hours to you. Um, but yeah, we're, what are we? We're, we're like three, three hours, hours right? which, three, you yeah. know, uh, in terms when we started doing some market research and for like the most successful podcast, they were like inside of like, 70 80 minutes at most more like 45 right. so power athlete unfortunately when we get on with Derek Woodski really values what I like to call the long form discussion because we get to work through a lot of different concepts and like I think the things that we're putting out deserve to be analyzed in such a way that doesn't take 20 or 30 minutes but I think um you know, like we said, like, what's the goal? Be a top 10 podcast or just have amazing conversations and connect with amazing individuals like Derek Woodski. I'll take the latter any day. Derek, thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, as always, man, uh, Power Athlete Radio is better for having you on. And I'm a better person for having counting you as a friend. Thank you very much for having me, guys. It's uh, I look forward to it every time. And hopefully we will uh, be physically in person before the latter. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, we've are like, it was hilarious. We got that today. And my wife's like, what do you think? I'm like, Thanksgiving, we'll literally pack up and let's go for the, like the whole month of December. So I was kind of hoping that California would open up and things wouldn't be as so weird. Cause man, I would like, I told the kids, I'm like, as soon as I got done school today, I'm like, we should pack up the truck and just drive to California and go to mammoth and go fishing and like take the mountain there's bikes a, and go out and just go yeah, do stuff. Man. But it, there's a it lot of open. people. It hasn't. Um, there's still a lot of people making do though. So there's a lot of tents on BLM land here. You know what I mean? So um, there are people that are taking the incentive just to get back to life. But yeah, the, the structured side of California is grinding. It's, it's not happening fast. Well, we'll look forward to it. So uh, give uh, all of our uh, love to Megan and uh, hopefully we'll see you soon, Amigo. Thank you very For much. For sure. Take care. See you, brother. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Follow Derek Woodski on Instagram at Derek Woodski. Or if you liked what you heard, you can refer back to our conversations with him in episode 214 and 281. Also, you can find our 2017 symposium talk with him available on YouTube. Until next time. Bye. Bye.